Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, August 17, 843-661-0937. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Good morning, Freehold. Would Freehold like to give a Good congratulatory, morning. don't you have a can round of applause for the Atlanta Braves in store? Okay, there you go. All right. And there you go. Um, <laughs> another very, very win short, for the Braves. Now, now, here's a reason not to be so giddy. Rev and I were texting last night. Um, here's a reason to be not as giddy as Brave fans appear to be this morning. You're beating the back end of their staff with the the front end of your staff. I noticed you put me in my place well, last I mean, night as I was getting it. I was getting giddy. You know, you've got Spencer Strider and Charlie Morton, and and they're not throwing. I mean, you'll see if the Braves win one of the next two really good weekend, winning three or four, and it means they would have beaten either Scherzer or Degrom. Because I think Scherzer goes today for the Mets, Degrom goes tomorrow for the Mets. So if the Braves can beat one of those two guys. That's that's kind of an icebreaker. Mm-hmm. That gets you to uh, you got a pennant race. I mean, if that happens, you've all of a sudden got a legitimate, bona fide pennant race. Um, but but once again, the Braves have had, and I think you'll agree to this as a Braves fan, a pretty good advantage with starting pitching. I mean, the way the rotations kind of lined sure. up. Um, but but once again, tonight you'll see Scherzer. Tomorrow you'll see Degrom. And if you can eke out one of those two wins, the way those two guys are throwing, um, winning three or four beating Scherzer or DeGrom. Now you want to swing for the fence, beat both. Oh. And, I mean, that that would be a monumental moment the only in hope, this season. I mean, DeGrom, they're both obviously great. I mean, top of the game. And uh, the only hope I hold out is that we've had pretty good luck, and I say we as the Braves have had pretty good luck against DeGrom in Atlanta. But you, you beat DeGrom. It. Well, I mean, in retrospect, a couple of times it didn't look like – I mean, DeGrom's had some injury issues. Mm-hmm. And for, I don't know, Rev, a season and a half, he probably, probably a season – he pitched um, not at full strength. And I think he's really – I think here, here what I'll give credit to the Mets. Uh, Freehold's a NL East fan. Uh, I'd like to see if he agrees with this. The Mets didn't rush DeGrom as much as it – I mean, they, they wanted him back on the mound. But they were very methodical in protecting his career and not, you know, hey, we really need this kid back on the mound because he makes us just a different – I mean, he's an electric pitcher. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, Freehold said yesterday something I'll agree with. Not since Verlander in his prime have I seen someone that dominant. I mean, he makes you look stupid. Now, I'll tell you this. Morton made the Mets look stupid last night. Mm -hmm. Um, Morton's curveball was just lights out. I mean, it was. um, When you're taking curves for strikes and swinging curves at a balls, that's when you know. um, And Morton's not the kind of guy that can go out and overpower teams. I mean, he just can't do that. Um, So Morton's got a little bit like Glavin did in his day. Uh, Maddox in his day. I mean, he's got to get you to swing at balls and take strikes. And Morton looked as good last night as I've ever seen him look. And the Braves have a little bit of um, resolve. I mean, it looks to me like they've kind of, um, you're in our stadium. We're the defending world champions. You're really good, and we'll accept that. But but you're not going to win this thing going away. We're not going to roll over and you win this thing by eight or nine or ten games. We're going to have a pennant race. Now, I still think the Mets are favorite because of DeGrom and Scherzer, and they've got a, a pretty substantial lead. Um, not as big as it was, but the Braves don't have much room for error. Let's go there. I mean, the mm-hmm. Braves don't have much room. When You're you right. get down 10 and a half, you, you got to play 700 baseball, but it's still not enough if the other team plays 633 baseball or 666 baseball. And that's what, you know, the Braves are having a great season. There was a year in the run that the Braves had that was so phenomenal that I think the Giants won 103 games and didn't make the playoffs. I mean, this is before they expanded the wild card. I think the Braves won a 108 that year. Um, so the Giants went to 103. I mean, if you ask a manager at the beginning of the season, hey, um, 
if you win 103 games, do you think you'll make the playoffs? What are you willing to bet? Everything. I mean, I'll bet everything if I win 103 baseball games. Now, now a smart baseball guy would have said, what division is that? The National League? Okay, that's the Braves. No, that's Mattis Glavine Smoltz. Let's be careful with that bet. The odds mm-hmm. aren't quite as good because the Braves. Now, now, once again, the expansion of the playoffs has allowed teams to get 10 and a half behind, not have to win the division, win 95, 98, 99, 100 games. Um, well, how many games do you think the Braves will win? I'll ask you that now. Oh. I mean, they're playing 610 baseball right now. Um, will they win 100 or not? Mm, I'm going to say right okay, around 100. I, I think right around 100. I mean, I think the 100 is kind of the magic number. Um, and if you win 100 games in this expanded playoff era, you're going to make the playoffs. I mean, it's hard to win 100 and not make the playoffs, but the Giants won 103 and didn't even make the playoffs. In fact, they lost that division by about five games the year the Braves uh, won 108. Uh, the Braves won 108 baseball games with a batting average less than 250. Team batting average like 235 or 240. They couldn't fall out of a boat and hit water. But they had those pitchers that they ran out there every day that were so, so, so good. So um, anyway, there's our sports report brought to you by Bert <laughs> of a Thousand Gods. There you go. Um, I, I guess the, the the biggest moment in politics um, yesterday, and I've got something philosophical that I want to wax upon and get our listeners to engage with. Um, Abraham Lincoln got beat in Wyoming. Uh, I thought it was Liz Cheney, but Abraham Lincoln, uh, you know, the the person that was there to preserve the union and save the day, uh, the persistent candidate, um, Liz Cheney basically announced her presidential campaign. You know, it's kind of an interesting, the, the, the interesting factoid in all of this to me is 20%, 22%. Um, that's what Tom Rice got as a candidate who impeached Donald Trump. That's what Liz Cheney got, excuse me, Abraham Lincoln got <laughs> last night in Wyoming. Uh, that seems to be the number. I didn't go through all these other campaigns because some were crowded, some were plurality elections. Um, it's hard to really get your arms around. Um, Liz Cheney got beat. What did she get, 32% of the vote, 31% of the vote? Um, the number of registered Democrats in Wyoming went from about 49,000 to 38,000. So 11,000 registered Democrats um, re-registered as Republicans for one reason and one reason alone, and that was to vote for Liz Cheney. They'll go back. I mean, they'll re-register. You'll, you'll watch uh, that number will go back to probably forty-seven or 48,000. Um, she did a better job than Tom Rice of getting Democrats to cross over, uh, but it's kind of a closed state, got to cross over and register. But she convinced 11,000 Democrats to go to a, a, a you know a polling state, excuse me, a, an election commission and switch parties. Now they'll go back and switch, but it doesn't matter. I mean, how miserable would life be as a liberal Democrat in Wyoming? I mean, you've got zero chance to win an election. Zero. I mean, I would imagine that the environment, the outdoors is something, you know, the wild, wild west and the expansive um, state of Wyoming. Um, But I mean, if you're a liberal Democrat in Wisconsin, excuse me, in Wyoming, I mean, just being an activist, I guess, makes you happy enough because you have zero chance to impact policy. And I read a couple of... um, newspaper articles in Wyoming of how excited some of the uh, Democrats were to cross over and actually mean something. You know, we're going to, hey, hey, we, 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 hey, 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 Dave, Dave, we, we, get, we get to cast a ballot that matters. That's funny. You know, we, we're crossing over to vote for Liz Cheney. I mean, imagine the excitement in a liberal Democrat to vote for a Cheney. I mean, that's pretty. <laughs> that's why this that, is so that, bizarre. It, it is very bizarre, but it, but it seems to me when you, when you extract the Democrats out of the fold, 
she got about 23% of the Republican vote. Remember yesterday, what is the number? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not talking about afflicted with the Trump derangement syndrome, but what is the number? What is the percentage of Republicans who just aren't, I mean, they want Trump abolished from the face of the planet Earth? Um, it seems to be between 20 and 25. I mean, that seems to be the number. That's a big number, Reb. And the, and the quandary we find ourselves in as Republicans, you can't beat Democrats if 20% of the Republicans aren't coming along. You just can't. I mean, if 20% of Republicans in Georgia, in Pennsylvania, choose to not support the Trump-endorsed candidate, Herschel Walker or Dr. Oz, because they're inferior candidates, they didn't pay their dues, you know, they're odd, they're different, um, Fetterman will win and Warnock will win. Now, if the Republicans believe in the virtues and values of Republicans, in other words, if they honestly believe in the lesser of two evils is the Republican, despite being endorsed by Trump, and they go vote, Walker will win and Oz will win. Because the the macros just clearly show that. That there's the macro of an approval rating um, in the 30s of a sitting president, the right track, wrong track number off the charts in the negative fashion. I think 78% of Americans today, I read a poll in Quinnipiac, 78% 78% of Americans believe the country is on the wrong track. Uh, 65% of those 78% blame President Biden. So he's upside down in a big way. Um, those two macro measures always lead to wave elections. But you've got this micro within the, the, tr- the Republican Party of Republicans who say, I'm not voting for that person because Trump endorsed that person. And that's, I mean, it's, you know, they've got that right. I mean, they're talking about the Bill Crystals. And it's not that they're not going to vote for the Republican. They're actively campaigning against the Republican. I think they've stopped short so far of endorsing Fetterman or Warnock, but they're running ads, uh, the Republican responsible, the, what is it, Republican Accountability Pack and the Lincoln Project. I mean, the Lincoln Project endorsed Biden. I mean, they were for Joe Biden. Um, so, so once again, the macro suggests that the Republicans are going to have a great, great midterm election until you start digging into the minutia of the micro. The 20 to 25 percent of Republicans who are not going to associate in any way, shape or form with Donald Trump. It's sad to me. It's a political travesty, but they have the right to do that. And they're they're certainly exercising um, that right as we see. So that's kind of the uh, that's the lead story. I mean, it, there'll be news out of Alaska. I think as I looked this morning, only 63 percent of the vote had been cast. It looks to me. I mean, it's kind of a um, it's a it's a qualifying primary. Uh, they what do they call it? A jungle primary. Notice that the results look different to me because they had the results of the Democrat and the Republican both on the screen. So is that what you're talking yeah, about? It's, and it's, the top two uh, advance. Uh, and Sarah Palin's won. Sarah Palin's in the House uh, in the Senate race with Murkowski. And, 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 Murkowski. and Murkowski got the most votes as of now, 63% of the vote. Let's look at this real quick. I had checked this morning. I checked late. Well, I did check this morning. I hadn't checked since I got here. I was kind of hoping this morning. Murkowski would be well, sent I mean, packing well, as I mean, well. She's not going to be sent packing. She's an established political name. I mean, it's somewhat of a, um, here you go, uh, with 67% of the vote. It was 66 uh, when I left the House. Oh, that's country. When I left home, uh, yeah, when I left the house, um, Murkowski, the incumbent Republican, 43.7% of the vote. Um, Shabaka, the Trump-endorsed candidate, 40.4% of the vote. And then Chesbro, uh, the Democrat, 9, uh, 6.2% of the vote. And then they'll, you know, those three will advance. Excuse me, the four will advance. And then the lead vote-getter of the four that advance. And then the Alaska Open at-large primary um, uh, the Democrat 
Uh, Patola got 35% of the vote. Palin gets 31% of the vote. Um, Begich, which is a kind of a political dynasty. I think his father, if I'm not mistaken, his grandfather went missing in mm-hmm. 1972 as a sitting member of Congress. I mean, he was in Congress from Alaska. I don't know why I remember this story. But if I'm not mistaken, the dude went missing. And mm-hmm. they think he may have done some things he shouldn't have done. You know what I mean? And and fled or ran or fight or risked to fly uh-huh. or whatever. And then Sweeney at 3.6%. I want to make sure that I'm explaining this the right way. Somebody out there may know more, more than this. So you've got an Alaska open seat that the top four advance. You've got an Alaska open at large seat in the House that the top four advance. So about two-thirds of the vote has been uh, has been counted. And Murkowski um, leads. Shabaka is uh, number two and just behind Murkowski. And then Palin is in second place at 31.4% of the vote. Um, Harriet Hageman got about 66% of the vote. Um, Cheney's down to 289 I think it was 32% last night when I went to bed. Um, I went back and looked at a tweet. I don't know why I like to do this. I went back and looked at a tweet that Liz Cheney sent. September 9, 2021, the day that Trump endorsed Harriet Hageman for uh, Congress in the state of Wyoming, and she, um, there was a Save America news release. Um, Liz Cheney included this in her um, tweet, and it said, and I quote, um, bring it. Well, I'd say Trump brung it. Yeah, he did. I mean, can we agree that Trump brung it um, to the point of um, 27 minutes after the poll closed, a, a news service called the race now now fox you know kind of drug their feet singing and drug their feet some of the um i don't know some of the more known media outlets but there, there's a certain media outlet or two that called the race 27 minutes after the polls closed i mean the writing was on the wall that's a drubbing i mean that's nearly a 40 percent uh so, so a sitting member of congress in a state that she visits from time to time because <laughs> um, she's from mclean virginia i mean that's where she lives that's where she's raised and uh there's a lot of irony here um, you know, I saw some reporting last night. Uh, Laura Ingram was having a little fun. I stayed up later than I normally do because of these two elections. But, um, you know, when she started comparing herself to Abraham Lincoln, you know, I'm going to save and preserve the union. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's absurd. Um, that's someone who thinks well, I mean, a she's, lot of She's an entitled snob. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what the Cheneys are. They're entitled snobs. So can we argue this morning that Donald Trump has expired <laughs> – um, the Clinton political dynasty, the Bush political dynasty, and now the Cheney political dynasty. I think so. You know, I've got friends of mine who talk about the courage and ca- character factor. You know, they're always talking about, uh, remember Cheney ran around saying, the reason I'm doing this is Donald Trump is the biggest threat to American democracy that we've ever seen in our lifetime. And then her father, I think, may have, um, I mean, he probably stayed in Wyoming 30 or 40 minutes, long enough to do the put the cowboy hat on the vest. Yeah, and dress like Matt Dillon and do a commercial um, in Wyoming. Just don't let him hold a rifle. Those folks were in Virginia. I mean, they are the epitome of establishment and elite. Um, But but I was thinking about this last night. So so Cheney runs on this, um, this doing the right thing. You know, I'm doing the right thing. I'm a martyr. I mean, nobody has called me a martyr yet. CNN will eventually. MSNBC, and she'll be a CNN Republican. See, there's a new kind of Republican now. It's called the CNN Republican. I mean, if you cross swords with Trump and you end up on the bad side, CNN hires you as one of their Republican uh, voices. Uh, They fired Santorum because he said some kind things about Trump. They've gotten rid of everybody that they had there. Remember, um, trying to think of the guy's name that worked for Trump a little bit. 
Uh, anyway, he was kind of a mainstream Republican, got too friendly with the America First agenda, and CNN said, we don't need you here any longer. Well, I mean, there, there's a lucrative media career in store for Liz Cheney. I mean, if she runs for president, so be it. You know, God bless her. I mean, she'll get her brains beat out because uh, Trump will bring it again, as he did um, this time. But yeah, I look back, September 9, 2021, the day that Trump endorsed Harriet Hagman, Liz Cheney, I guess she had a cowboy hat on when she said this. Her father may have been standing by her side when she tweeted this, when she said, bring it. Trump brung it. You can bet your sweet bottom dollar on that. <laughs> 843-661-0937. I want you to ponder one thing before we take our first break. Um, you know, I'm into this dark enlightening. Yep. I, I'm into this um th- this real dark side of politics, the cathedral and the the deep state and all. I mean, I'm off the deep end on that. I'm the, I'm a true believer. I mean, I'm I'm you know I've, I'm not a convert because I've always had this bent gene about me. But now I know where I stand. There's a group of others with that bent gene that have welcomed me home. So it's not that I'm a convert to this. I've always been there. I just kind of rambled around the universe, not knowing where to land. Well, now I know where I land. I land in this dark enlightenment camp this belief that there's a cathedral out there. Here's the question I want to pose today, because I was listening to YouTube videos with um Yarkin and and, and some of these other some of these other masterminding um, they're really bright guys and they're they're really um off the beaten path. And they, they had a debate last night about deep thinking. And we, we passed a bill yesterday called the Inflation Reduction Act that will have no impact on inflation. How can a political party get away with that? I mean, you got, you know, in the tank media, in the tank bureaucracies, we get all that. I mean, you know, there's kind of a game played and there's the cathedral by definition. But but I believe that, uh, and this is the debate, how many people are capable of deep thinking? I mean, a dog has every capacity to be loyal and passionate and and do the right thing more times than not. In fact, the soul of a dog is probably more or less contaminated than the soul of a human being. That uh, they're more selfless. That they're more generous. They're they're more loyal. I mean, there are a lot of characteristics. But dogs don't have the ability to think deeply. How many human beings? What percentage of human beings in America today have the ability or the interest? I think there's some who have the ability, but but lack the interest to be a deep thinker. What is a deep thinker? I mean, help me define that. I mean, there was this debate I watched last night for probably 40 minutes about deep thinking that there's there's some people who believe that Americans have the ability to think deeply about whatever it is. And they're the dark enlighteners who say, nah, very few people, very few people have the intellectual capacity. I mean, they're good people. I mean, they're real good people that they can be your best friend. They're loyal. They're passionate. They're honest. They're sincere. They're dedicated. They're hard workers. They just don't have the intellectual horsepower to be deep thinkers. What do we land on? That's just kind of an interesting, because if you can name something, the Inflation Reduction Act, and admit it does nothing about inflation, but the American people don't challenge you on that, why? Are we that easily hoodwinked? Or are we that easily dismissive of whatever there is out there um, that we perceive to be true or not? Once again, that's kind of a philosophical debate, but it's so interesting to me. How many of us have the ability to sincerely and truly think deeply about whatever it is that we're thinking about? Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Dale in Florence. Good morning, Dale. Morning, guys. 
The only reason they changed the name of that bill to Inflation Reduction Act was to hoodwink Mansion and Cinema. Two of you are not real deep thinkers. I hope you guys don't mind. Um, there's that situation going on out west that I found fast. I've been following up for weeks now. The whole Colorado River, Lake Mead, Lake Powell situation. You, you know, the Hoover Dam is one of the iconic structures in our country. They're running out of water. They're right now only running five of their 13 generators. And this is going to be huge. The Colorado River, the, the, the federal government went in yesterday and cut out 21% of Arizona's uh, chunk of the Colorado River. And they cut some more out. But this has been a fascinating thing. I mean, it, they use that water for so much out in the southwest. And at this point, nobody has any idea of what they're going to do to replace it uh, with this big drought going on and everything. Have you guys been following that at all? Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, there's uh, it's weird that you say this. There's a Bureau of Reclamation that made an announcement right. that the state of Colorado has to cut its water usage is it a twenty five percent Dale? I mean, it's somewhere in the twenties, if I'm not mistaken. It was it was Arizona. Okay, Arizona. That's what I'm saying. It's the Colorado River, but but the the Bureau of Reclamation said the state of Arizona is using twenty some odd percent too much water and must cut by that number. But they're also cutting, like they use the Colorado River. People don't realize it goes. They pipe it all the way into the Imperial Valley of California, where what? 30% of our produce in this country comes from nowadays. Yep. And they're talking about cutting a huge part of that out. People in Los Angeles aren't going to have drinking water. And $40 billion of your Inflation Reduction Act is going to try to figure out how to get water to people out in the Southwest. Now, these are the deep thinkers that decided to, 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 to move to the desert where there's no water, and now they're, they're crying because there's no water. There's some deep thinking for you. You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. You know, I'm reading a lot about the Kentucky floods, and some of the liberal voices are saying the floods are caused by climate change, extreme weather. No, the floods are caused by not allowing the rivers to run where God intended the rivers to run. I mean, I get it. I mean, I understand damming and all these other rediversions and, and whatnot. I mean, you're trying to get drinking water, and this is big water. I mean, I get all that. I certainly understand that. There are some places on this planet that God didn't intend for us to inhabit. I mean, he just didn't. I mean, there, there are certain ecosystems that support human life uh, in, in very easy fashion. There are others who don't. And I think it's interesting when we marvel at some of the, uh, the, the, the rediversions and some of the dams and some of the ways we uh, human entrepreneurship and innovation um, create, you know, um, the cities of Las Vegas and some of these other places out of the desert. Well, in, in, in real fashion, I mean, God intended the, the, for some places to be inhabited by man and some not. And, um, you know, I got a buddy of mine, good friend of mine who went out west, spent about two weeks, uh, landed in Las Vegas, got in a car and rode around for a month. And he's a country boy like me. And you know, the first thing he told me when he got back, he said, I said, what did you notice about out there? He said, no water. There's no water. I mean, it, there's an abundance of water here. I mean, it's obvious. You got greenery and it's lush. And he said, but there's no water out there. And once again, this guy's a lawyer by education, but he's kind of a good old boy. Grew up in a small town like I do. I grew up on a farm. And he, and he just comes back. And the first, he didn't talk about the beauty of, uh, you know, Yellowstone or excuse me, the Grand Canyon or, you know, um, Mount Rushmore. He went to all those places. Actually went up in Alaska. Spent about two or three weeks just riding around in a car, him and his kid and um, him and his son. And, uh, and he just came back. And the first thing he's like, I can't believe how little water there is out there. There is no water. But it's Dale's right. 
and, and a lot of this is the Colorado River Basin. You know, it's kind of interesting when you uh, when you really start. Th- I go to Georgetown. I go through Georgetown a lot going to, uh, to the beach. And it's that's where all the water ends up. You know, that the, the Yadkin River Basin and the PD River and all these other sorts of things. I mean, they, you know, there's a watershed. I mean, there's a way that God intended for water to run. And, um, I mean, if you believe in a creator, we kind of talked a little bit about this yesterday. You got to believe that he wasn't dumb, right? I mean, did it get a lot wrong? I mean, if, there, if there's a, um, a creator in heaven, uh, talking about Christopher Hitchings is when we were, you know, kind of going down that road of um, theology and, and God's work and God's amazing accomplishment. Um, I mean, if God said the water is to go here, man should probably let the water go there. But man, um, in its pursuit of um, the betterment of mankind, says, you know, we could build houses there if we could only get water. I mean, people could live here if we could only get um, get water. And we've rediverted. I mean, the, the Kentucky floods are a prime example. I mean, it's not extreme water. I mean, I'm, I'm serious, guys. It's not extreme weather. It's not climate change. It is the way man has rediverted some of the running water on the Mississippi River. I mean, that's just what has happened. And out west... I mean, I had someone tell me when I was lieutenant governor, came to see me at my office one day. And they, I, I mean, I didn't know what to make heads or tails of it because I hadn't gone down this road and explored. But they were trying to make the argue, argument to me that water is going to be the new oil. You know, the world has been in hot pursuit of oil um, converting to, you know, petroleum, diesel, kerosene, um, gasoline. But he believed that uh, water would become something that, you know, nations fight over and states argue over. And, um, yeah, Arizona, here, here's a good part of this. You ready? You want to be, I, mean, I can't help but be a politician. Once one, always one. Um, Mark Kelly is a senator in Arizona, the incumbent and sitting senator in Arizona. And whether he's to blame or not, if they begin rationing water in Arizona, that hurts Kelly. I mean, I'm thinking about Blake Masters. I mean, if I'm Blake Masters, there's nothing good about rationing water. There's nothing good about a piece of legislation that says your state can't consume as much water as you've been consuming. I mean, I'm trying to find a story here that I read about a week or so ago that actually breaks down tier one, tier two, um, what you can, what you can't do, but what sort of water you usage. Go looking down the road, and so this, uh, from a political standpoint, you think this it hurts well, I mean, if you're sitting somebody, senator? Well, I mean, if you're somebody in Arizona and 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 the the federal government says. Um, via the, I mean, the federal government has a Bureau of Reclamation and they announced yesterday, as Dale said, that the state of Arizona must cut its water use back. Uh, they get their water supply from the Colorado River. The Colorado River Basin is a big deal out there. I mean, it's a, it's a big deal. So if Mark Kelly is the sitting senator and the people of Arizona all of a sudden wake up one morning and they're told you're using too much water and the federal government says you can't use but so much, so you can't water your lawn, you can't wash your car. We always look for the boogeyman, right? I mean, yeah, there's somebody blame to blame somebody. here. Yeah, so so who's to blame? Well, it can't be Blake Masters. He isn't there. It's got to be that guy, that astronaut guy that we voted for last time. That's why you don't vote for damn astronauts. I mean, if you vote for astronauts, somebody will tell you you can't use as much water as you've been using. I mean, I'm serious, guys. This goes back to the deep thinker or not. You know, are we deep thinkers? Deep thinkers would not blame Mark Kelly for the water issues in Arizona. Feeble-minded people would. People who are passively interested in politics would say, well, I mean, I'm not voting for the guy that's in there now because they said we can't use as much water. 
So that yeah, I mean that, that, there's a distinct advantage Blake Masters has. So if this is a hotly contested race, and we believe it is, if Arizona is a a swing state, we know that to be true. I'd rather be the guy running for office than the guy in office. If the people of Arizona are told you got to cut your water use by 21 percent, there are a lot of things we can do without guys. I mean, we can do without smartphones. I mean, I got a Yeti cup with coffee. I got a life water here. I got a computer. I got a peanut patch boy with peanut, you know, uh, mouse pad. I got a lot of things here. Um, just named two of our sponsors. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> strategically, strategically named two of our sponsors. But the one thing I don't want to do without is water. I mean, Freehold, will you use water during the show? Rev, will you use water during the show? Yep. Well, I, of course we will. Got to have it. Of course we will. So, um, um. They're asking, here we go, they're asking Arizona to reduce its river water usage by 592,000 acre feet. One acre foot of water would generally supply three average Phoenix households with water for a year. So if one acre foot, stick with me, Rev, if one acre foot of water would support or supply three Phoenix households, and they've got to cut it by 592,000 acre feet. Wow. I mean, that's seriously, guys. Mm. I mean, if I'm running a campaign, if I'm if I'm working for Blake Masters, if I'm elected to the U.S. Senate, you won't have to worry about too much water. I mean, we I've got a water plan. Uh, you, you see where I'm headed? Yeah. I mean, deep thinkers Politics. know better than that. And if we were a nation of scholarly and philosophical deep thinkers, they would say, well, that's absurd. But we're not. We're absolutely not. And see, most of the stories I've read about the drought and the situation out there is that as Lake Mead has dried up, they're, of course, finding sunken vessels and human remains. It is. They're having a drought. I mean, it, it is. I mean, they're having a kind of a 50-year, 100-year drought, no doubt about it. Um, and Lake Mead is a big part of that. But but the majority of the legislation, the Bureau of Reclamation is talking about the, the Colorado River Basin and how important it is. And apparently, I mean, I don't know... Who decides, how, I mean, what is your quota in Arizona? What is your quota in Colorado? What, what is your quota? I don't know. I don't have any idea. How many states does the Colorado River run through? I mean, if you live out there, you know it. You know, you're kind of well aware of it. Um, it it's just kind of, once again, when I read the story, see, it's in, Dale read it in a way about water. I read it in a way about who gets the advantage in Arizona for Senate. And right. I think if Blake Masters announced today, if if you give me a shot at the U.S. Senate, I got a water plan. Yeah, you, you, I've got a water plan. You better believe it. We'll work with the Bureau of Reclamation and make sure we don't get this far behind the eight ball. But a lot of it is is the droughts. But guess what, guys? Arizona's a fairly dry state. Newsflash: You're going to have droughts in Arizona. <laughs> I mean, it's that's just where it is. That's the way God intended and designed it. Um, Arizona's probably capable of supporting this many people in its natural state. But if you kind of, you know, design and redesign and divert and redivert, all of a sudden Phoenix has a million more people than it should. Arizona has a couple of million more people than it should. I'll do that I'll, during the break. I'll see how many. Um, Because Arizona's got what, two? Uh, Arizona's got two metropolitan areas. I mean, I know Phoenix is. Is Tempe Tucson. a metropolitan? Tucson, Arizona. There you go. Um, 843-661. Standing on the corner. Yeah. In Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> What's the next one? Such a fine sight. Yeah, it's a girl, my lord. In a flatbed four. Oh, I'm slowing down to take a look at me. 
Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. So is standing on a corner in where, Rev? <laughs> it's Wednesday. Oh, no, 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 before you say that. Yep. How long have you been in radio? <laughs> a long Who is time. one of your favorite all-time bands? Eagles. Once again, how long have you been in radio? Like 30 plus years. Who is one of your all-time favorite bands? Eagles. And is standing on a corner where? In Tucson, Arizona? Who said Tucson? You did. No, I think you said that. Sure you did. <laughs> no, you, you're the one that brought in the great line from the Eagles song, Standing on a Corner in... Yeah, I did. Okay. Look, we were just talking about Phoenix and Tucson, right? Mm-hmm. So, it is Winslow, Arizona, Okay, just obviously. want to make sure we understand that. I, and that was me. I mean, could, could, could you have insulted the Eagles any I more know. than what you just did? And I, and I could say I would have done that, you know, on purpose based on what we were talking about, because we had talked about Phoenix and Tucson, and then, yes, Winslow, Arizona. But, you know, what what, <laughs> what I was thinking... And I let it slide. I'm yeah, like, yeah, Tucson. Yeah, yeah, you sang the next line, yeah. just like it was right. Because so. Jackson Brown wrote the line, yep. and the Eagles kind of... He um, gave it to him or yeah, something. He said, he said, hey, man, I can't do... I mean, I've got this lyric, I've got this line, I can't do anything with it. Um, gave it to Glenn Fry and Don Henley, and the rest is, they say, in Pamplico and Francais is... But what 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 blows my mind more about the entire last segment is that Dale called and said, hey, I've got a, an off the topic, off the wall thing I've been looking at. I want to talk to you about. And he throws out this thing about the drought in the southwest and and the, the drying of the Lake Mead and the rivers. And you had obviously already studied that issue. You've thought through some political ramifications of that issue. You knew percentages and how they're you know diverting rivers and how is it that you'd actually well, he, already studied that? He he threw a subject out there that he thought was was off the beaten path, and you seem to be all, already well-researched and schooled Okay, on. if I'm on the air four hours, I'm reading three hours. I mean, there's three hours a day I set aside. It may be in my pickup on my phone with my reading glasses. It may be at home watching the Braves as the backdrop. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, for, for every hour I'm on the air, I'm trying to prepare for another hour. And a lot of it is plundering around. I mean, what may be interesting out there? Once again, what have we tried to do? Tell people things they don't know. I mean, they, you know, the, the drumbeat of talk radio is the drumbeat of talk radio. It's highly successful. The model works. We get bored with that at times. So we're always exploring other avenues and opportunities of stories that we could find interesting. And, and when I read the story about the water in Arizona, and I think I read it on a local CBS affiliate. I mean, there was something that came up on my feed um, cause I've got these aggregate sites that I go to that, you know, has a story about this and I'm in drudge and power line and flipboard and, uh, I'm trying to think of some others. I, I've thought about, you know, community broadcasters having an aggregate site. I mean, I really think wake up Carolina could, um, put a site together, have a website of which we put these stories that we find interesting from the times, from the post, from Breitbart, from salon, from wherever. But there was a local story and a CBS affiliate that I thought explained it well. So automatically, I go to political mode. And I'm going like, okay, this could be a chance for Blake Masters to gain a little traction. Um, Kelly's the incumbent. They've got a problem with water. It's got to be the incumbent's problem. It's got to be the astronaut that failed to understand the complexities of Arizona's dependence on the, the Bureau of Reclamation of the federal government. See, that's where I'd make the tie-in. Kelly can't say it's his fault because the Bureau of Reclamations who cut our water supply, that's a federal agency. I mean, he's the guy that deals with the federal government. This isn't a county council issue or a state government issue. This is a federal issue, and this astronaut was not paying attention, and, and you, you need somebody who will. So, I mean, I think there's political points to be scored. Let's go to the phone. Michael in Florence. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. 
Yeah, so you're talking about this, and I heard the gentleman say uh, California diverts water to the Imperial Valley, and, and of course they, they grow a lot of food there. But listening to all of this, it just kind of makes me wonder on a, on a percentage basis, because another big user of the Colorado River is the city of Los Angeles. They have the uh, infamous aqueduct that diverts water to the city of Los Angeles, and I, and I can't help but wonder, you know, okay, so Arizona has to reduce it by 20%, and that's uh, like a half a million, I think you call it acre feet. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, much, how much is the, the state of California reducing it? And, and then, of course, my mind goes to, you know, how partisan is it? Since California is so liberal, are, are they getting more than their, you know, quote-unquote fair share? But, and of course, I don't know the numbers on who uses how much water state by state. But it just kind of makes you wonder, how do you decide that Arizona has to reduce theirs by 20%? Because California could probably reduce it by a lot less and yield a whole lot more water. Because I'm sure they're using more water than Arizona is. No doubt about it. California probably uses more water. Think of it called appreciate it. California probably uses more water than any state in America. I mean, excuse me. Yeah, I mean, by far. I mean, you got to believe that. I mean, that's California is like the 11th biggest economy in the world um, just as a state economy. I mean, you know, the food produced there. Uh, I mean, it's unbelievable how much food California produces. I mean, it's genuinely a nation within a nation, not only big in acreage, but big in influence to American policy. But I think the caller is making an interesting point. Who in Arizona is, is going to – my interest stopped at Arizona because of the Senate race. I mean, that's you know, a Republican's not going to win California. I'm not saying I don't care about the water problem in California because ultimately we'll eat something today that probably came from California. But that's kind of an interesting take. Did did California outpolitic Arizona? Of course they did. Of course they did. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Held on during the break. Let's go there. Steve in Hartsville. Good morning, Steve. Hey, how you doing? I want to give you a perspective on the Las Vegas thing. Um, I lived in Vegas, uh, lived in California, and I have family in Arizona. Um, when Hoover Dam was created, they decided during there 100 years ago how much water was going to flow to who. Vegas gets the least amount. I mean, it's like, let's look at it, like 15 20%. I forget the percentages, but it's that low. Um, I lived in Vegas in 92. There was 800,000 people. There's 2.8 million people that live there, and that has nothing effect of the people that visit every week. So California is taking the most. Arizona gets second the most. Las Vegas gets the smallest amount. So you take the drought, the amount of people that are living in Vegas, and it's just killing the water. They tried to – there was a lot of people pushing to stop selling land in the Vegas Valley so they wouldn't take any more water. Basically, landlocked things. But, you know, with politics and people wanting to build and the money there is, it's never happened. They've been talking about that 25 years ago when I was living there, and there was water restrictions when I was living there. You couldn't wash your car. Um, they were starting to make people go from a grass yard to a desert landscaping, things of that nature. Arizona and California has fought Nevada – basically not giving an inch and saying we're not gonna you know take less water you got what you got and that's that and with california being the farming state they're not gonna budge and they have a lot more power political wise so meanwhile vegas keeps building arizona and california keep taking the amount of water they take there's a drought and no one's budging 
So are there too many people living out west? Simple question. Are there too many people living in the western United States for the, the natural infrastructure to support? Well, you could say that, but then you go look at California. There's places in the mountains and different things where water is basically flowing from the snow straight out to the ocean. And when there was groups that say, hey, we could dam up this mountain area and create three more lakes in California and use that water, you have people like the Sierra Club come in or different groups and say, no, we're not changing the landscape and you're not going to cut a tree down. You're not going to do this. So it's California not budging, not trying to make things better, and they just keep taking that Colorado River water and it's getting lower and lower. But California, like I said, it's just the same it's been for 100 years. No one's changing. No one's budging. And now you've got basically these you know green type people that will not change the landscape to create areas where they can uh, dam up water and change the future so california is kind of a uh, i've always referred to florida i mean it is in the south but it's not the south i mean it's almost a nation within itself the state of florida is california similar to that on the west coast i mean is it almost a nation exclusive of all of its um neighboring states yeah you can say california when you look at it in general you're just open a book and start researching yeah uh california is much bigger than most countries in the world it's the 11th economy. biggest economy we in the world live without california yeah it's the 11th oh, yeah. biggest economy in the world thank you appreciate the call kind of a uh, inside perspective mm. uh, i actually pulled up something during the break um uh, the dakotas aren't west nebraska's not west so for argument's sake let's say the west begins with montana wyoming colorado new mexico from north to south I mean, that's kind of the, um, it's almost a straight line. It's not quite a straight line, but it's pretty close. Wyoming, uh, excuse me, Montana furthers north. Then you got Wyoming, then Colorado, then New Mexico. Um, and then you go over west to Arizona, Utah, Idaho. Um, and then you get to the coastal states, uh, Washington, Oregon, and California. I mean, that kind of makes up the, the western United States. So when you look at Montana, not a lot of people, right? I mean, we know there aren't many in Wyoming. Um, more cows in Wyoming, more cattle than there are human beings. Colorado would be different. Denver, I mean, Denver's a metropolitan area. Do this for me. What's the population of Colorado, Rev? New Mexico, not uh, densely populated. Arizona is a pretty populated state. If I'm not mistaken, seven or eight million people live in Arizona. Colorado, 5.685 million. Okay, so, you know, roughly the size of South Carolina in population. I mean, South Carolina's at about 5.3 million. It's how big? 5.6. 5.6. Okay, a few more, a couple of hundred thousand more people in Colorado than in South Carolina, but you've got a major metropolitan area in Denver. South Carolina's the 21st, I think, or 22nd or 21st most populated state in America. It's the most populated state without a major metropolitan area. Denver is a major metropolitan area. Colorado has 300,000 or so more people than South Carolina. Um, Utah, what's the population of Utah? I don't know why we're interested in this. It's just uh, Dale kind of started this off the beaten path conversation so utah 3.1 okay and three million mormons um and then you go to idaho not a lot of people but then you get to washington i mean i'll bet you there's seven or eight million people in washington Washington because of seattle and some of the other surrounding areas but but you know washington is is, i mean i I gotta believe that water's not a big deal to washington it's a coastal state it neighbors i mean it's got big bodies of water coming across the canadian border i mean you know it it rains a lot yeah it rains a lot i mean to, to me when i think of a drought out west I just don't think of, of Washington or Oregon. I mean, they're north of California. Seattle's known the, for its rain. Yeah, I mean, it, it rains every day in Seattle. So, uh, you know, I'm thinking about, uh, went back and looked during the break, California gets 4.4. They're allocated 4.4 million acre feet of water 
from the uh, Colorado River Basin. Um, Arizona's number two at 2.8 million. Um, Arizona's a populated state, about seven, eight million people in Arizona. Uh, I guess the fundamental question is, can the natural infrastructure that God built, um, Lewis and Clark found, can can they support that many people? I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, they can if we don't have a drought. I mean, I don't think we have, but, but I've always heard, I mean, as a young person, I always heard, you know, um, water issues out West. There are water issues out West. And we've heard about the, the aqueduct that feeds water into, um, Los Angeles. Some of the major, I mean, California's got 40 million people. Wow. I mean, think of that. Do the rest of the States combined have 40 million people? I mean, it'd be close seven and seven, 14, another five. And I don't probably don't. I mean, California probably has more than the other 12 states combined, including Washington and Oregon. But once again, when I think of Washington and Oregon, I mean, obviously I know it's out west. I mean, it's on the west coast. But I just don't think about Washington and Oregon like I do Nevada, um, Montana, Wyoming, Arizona. To me, that's kind of the uh, the rural west. And, and when I think of the coastal. I think of the desert. Yeah, I, mean, I, I do. That's exactly what I think about. Um, uh is just I don't I don't know. I, mean, I was I, thinking the other day they have that new live PD show we talk about occasionally. So the new uh, on patrol live is on, and they follow Nye County, Nevada, as part of their coverage. And uh, and I I was thinking the other day that all the yards and the houses they go to they're just dirt, dirt. Yeah, and the damn thing there. That's I mean, right. it's just barren. I mean, it looks barren, but but you know people live there, and it's warm. And I mean, some of the wealthiest retirees in the world have moved to Arizona. You know, Tempe and Phoenix and some of these other. Um, locations or locales winslow. Have been very yeah winslow on a corner in winslow we got it right that time didn't <laughs> yeah, we yeah. um i won't let that happen again. yeah i want to go back to this real quick okay we're deep thinking right i mean we're deep thinkers here on wake up carolina we're thinking deeply about the issue so there are here i mean let, let's just take the word think for a second um what is what is a deep thinker to you i mean th- there are things i know to be true the repetitive nature of mathematics. I know that two plus two equals four, um, except in Washington, D.C. Everywhere else in the world, two plus two equals four. 27 degrees is 27 degrees. 89, um, 89 degrees is 89 degrees. Um, there are certain certainties that we know to be true. And then the next step is things I think are true. I mean, I think the Republicans would do a better job running the country. I think the Gamecocks could win more than six football games this year. I think Clemson's going to have trouble at South Bend against Notre Dame. That's kind of a hope and not a thing. Because um, <laughs> I hope and a thing. There you go. There's a hope and a thing there. Um, but so there are things I know to be true. There are things I think to be true. Deep thinking requires us to think about things we have no answers to. I, I don't know the answer to some of these um the uh philosophical and i talked about faith yesterday theological problems or issues that we ponder and and concern ourselves with so here's the question i'm asking how many people in america as a percentage are deep thinkers now, now some we could argue and, and once again i'm not diminishing the value of a human being i'm not saying if you're not a deep thinker you know you, you're not worth as much to society in, in all honesty Deep thinkers are probably more burdening are you, to society. Are you equating deep thinkers to intelligence? Don't know. I, I don't know. Um, you you got to believe that there are people out there with the capacity to think deeply about whatever it is they want to think about. They're just not interested. That they're, they're lazy. 
Um, they're busy. They're busy. Yeah. yeah, they've got a lot of other things going on. Um, but they have the intellectual ability to think deeply about issues. They're not Einstein. They're not Aristotle. But they've got the ability to go a little deeper if they choose to. And then here's where we get into real offensive sorts of conversations. There are some people who just don't have the capacity. They don't have the ability. I, I'm more liberated to say that now, and maybe I'm in that group. I mean, I fancy myself as someone who tries to think a little bit deeper than, than others. I don't know if I make a fool of myself or not when I try to go down that road. Um, I mean, it's obvious Einstein had the ability to be a deep thinker. Aristotle had the ability to be a deep thinker. Um, Plato had the ability to be a deep thinker. I mean, they've proven that. They wrote. Uh, Jefferson had the ability to be a deep thinker. Um, what is the country like? And once again, I use dogs as an analogy. With all due respect, I know we got a, a lot of animal lovers out, out there. Dogs don't have the ability to think deeply and consciously about whatever issue they're dealing with. Um, they're, they have great qualities. And people who aren't deep thinkers can have great qualities. You can be loyal. You can be uh, punctual. You can be um, have a good work ethic. You can be um, um, uh, passionate. You can be you can be smart. But I think there's a line, and and here's the point I'm trying to make. A lot of the what I've read about the dark enlightenment. I mean, these guys are deep thinkers. These ladies are deep thinkers. By and large, men, and they're kind of I mean, they're they're kind of chauvinistic. Um, they do. I mean, they they really and truly are probably a bit racist. In all honesty, I mean, if you really categorized some of these dark enlighteners, that they, they would they would argue they're not racist. They would accept that they're probably somewhat chauvinistic, but they are deep thinkers. The majority of these people have the not just the intellectual horsepower; they have the the desire to think deeply about these issues. The cathedral is not something you um, just just you know you don't read about that in in highlight magazine. You don't read about that on, you know, there, there's not a Seinfeld episode about the cathedral. So, so the point I'm trying to make is, um, and, and I want to get back to this, because I think it's political. So if we passed a piece of legislation that was named the Inflation Reduction Act, and they pretty much admitted it has nothing to do with inflation, why would the American people not be as critical about that? I mean, it's got a, about a 41% approval rating. I mean, 41% of Americans, as of yesterday, said they support the Inflation Reduction Act. Those people can't be deep thinkers. They can't be. Now, do they choose to not be deep thinkers? Or are they, or are they just blinded by their political objectives and political agendas? Or do, are they just dumb? See, that's one thing we've got to accept. <laughs> I'm getting in trouble here. <laughs> there are some dumb Americans. You can't say that. Sure you can. I mean, th th there are some people who just lack the intellectual ability to comprehend sophisticated issues. Now, now, once again, there are some who have the ability, just not the desire to go there. But but I think democracies and representative republics require a certain percentage. I don't know what that percentage is, but a certain percentage of its partakers, its participants, have to be deep thinkers. Would you agree to that? Mm, I mean, I think, remember the line sure. in, uh, in John Adams' the miniseries when he says about, you know, he's talking about, you know, uh, his wife had died, his daughter had died, and he needed to let people know. And his confidant said, is there anybody I need to let know? And he said, uh, Mr. Jefferson. And he says, um, that man did me and my reputation great harm. And the, the, the confidant says, may I? And he kind of wanted to elaborate. And he said, you know, many died for the revolution. Many fought with the revolution. I always felt you and Mr. Jefferson thought for the revolution. 
Um, there's no doubt Adams and Jefferson were thinkers, very deep thinkers, the ability to think deeply and the desire to think deeply. And I just think one of the uh, prerequisites of a flat, excuse me, of a, a prosperous democracy is a percentage of its people with the ability and the desire to think deeply about the issues that we ponder, consider, and potentially politicize. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Hey, Larry. Larry's a deep thinker. <laughs> I don't know about all that. I spend a lot of time thinking, but I don't know if I get anywhere. <laughs> um, uh, so your question about how many people in America are, are deep thinkers, well, I don't know about that, but I do know that IQ is what they call normally distributed, which means we can know some things about it without having to think too hard, which is that plus or minus one standard deviation from the average intelligence in America represents 68.5% of the country. All right? So a standard deviation means uh, if, you're, if you're less than one standard deviation from the mean, you're, you're pretty much normal. That would be the word. That's where that word normal comes from. It's actually a statistical word. Um, so, but you got to realize that of that 68.5%, half of that is below the average intelligence line. So you've got, you've only got half the country that's even above average intelligence. So it can't, you say that, you know, deep thinkers, you know, 41% voted for it. They can't be deep thinkers. You're probably about right. Um, because you start veering from average intelligence kind of to the left of the bell curve and you start becoming less intelligent and even inside one standard deviation for you you could easily say that maybe even 60 percent of the country doesn't have a high intelligence because you've got to be at least one standard deviation out so there may only be 30 or 40 percent of any population that by the iq you could say are you know, above average intelligence to an extent that it would that you'd notice it. So it's it's if you're a deep thinker, you're probably in a in a pretty stark minority, frankly. Larry, can someone of average intelligence be a deep thinker? They can try. Um, they can pay attention. They can get good advice. They can choose who they listen to. Uh, maybe better. So yeah, you could you could stop and think about those things. But I don't know that they necessarily could come up with the solution to a deep thinking problem, but they could pick better advisors. You know, they could sit and think about, you know, who they listen to and, and why. I think we're all capable of that. But I don't know that average people, you know, God loves them. He made more of them than anybody else. But, um, but I don't know that they're who you look to for the solution, but, but you've got to win them over. So if you're a deep thinker, you've got to figure out how to explain it to a group of people that maybe don't think that deeply and, and win their hearts and minds. That's what we say, right? Winning the heart and mind of people. So the problem that a lot of deep thinkers have is that they can't get on that level and explain it. I always say some people think in, poetry some people think in prose and some people think in pictures and if you think in poetry you got to learn how to draw a picture for some people and and a lot of times that's what i think you know these dark enlighteners we talk about their intellectual horsepower but but they don't have a certain social iq and emotional iq that helps them relate to regular people 
like me and you. Peter Thiel. Peter so, Thiel would be the classic example of a guy. I mean, you know he's off the chart smart. I know he's off the chart smart. But can he paint that picture? We know he can write the poetry. Can he paint the picture right. that's discernible and understandable to the masses? When I say he couldn't get elected dog catcher, that's exactly what you're saying. Yep. And so so I, I think people maybe I don't consider myself a Peter Thiel. I didn't quite make a 1600 on my SAT, though I was close. Um, but but uh but I, but I think it takes folks like us to bridge the gap between the Peter Teals and, and you know, the, the, the Peter that drives a John Deere, you know? Yep. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. Kind of an interesting, um, I mean, once again, th- this is as random as could be, but it's not because I'm going to get to a place, if you'll bear with me for a second, um, democracy's hard. Self-governance is complicated. It really is. And I think we can have a nation that doesn't include uh, a large percentage of deep thinkers. I don't think we pick, we can be governed by people who aren't deep thinkers. I mean, I think there's an obligation and a responsibility you accept when you become a part of the, you know what I mean? I mean, I'm the apparatus now that makes the laws of which everybody has to operate uh, under and, and, and are obligated to or controlled by. I, I just think we, once again, um, I think Larry's right. And I, I, this is not insulting. It's not insulting at all. How about how many deep thinkers are there in America? A low percentage. I mean, there's a there, there's a lot of good people. There's some bad people, but but I'm not talking about good and bad. I'm not talking about committed or not. I'm not talking about passionate or not. I'm not talking about excited or not. I'm not talking about enthusiastic. I'm not talking about commit. I mean, there are a lot of different verbs that we can use there to describe, you know, how people kind of segregate. Um, Clemson fans are passionate. Gamecock fans are loyal. How many deep thinkers are there in America, and how much? longer can we be governed by people who by and large aren't very deep thinkers how many deep thinkers can get elected to office and here's another question how many can write the poetry and paint the picture are there any deep thinkers in washington in elected office in powerful positions now think of one let's take a break we'll be back in just a minute Four three six six one zero nine three seven. let's jump ship and leave that subject for a second we'll get back to it in just a minute, the major story in politics for the last week or so has been the raid on Mar-a-Lago. Um, Donald Trump is now, they released some of the, well, not, they released the search warrant, but not the affidavit. Trump is calling for the releasement of the affidavit, um, basically has denounced the FBI raid as a, a an unjustified search of his private residence. The Lawfare Project Senior Counsel, um, Gerard Felitti, is with us. Mr. Felitti, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? So what are we to make of Trump requesting that the affidavit be released? Trey Gowdy's a fellow South Carolinian. I watched Trey on Fox News a couple of days ago basically say to protect some of the witnesses, just redact the names. Is that uh, reasonable? I think that's very reasonable. And, and the reason President Trump is asking for this, as are a number of media outlets as well, is we need transparency. This is an unprecedented search of a former president's residence for that, that seems very much to be politically motivated, both in timing and in context. And we need the Justice Department to show that this is not a political witch hunt, that it actually has or thinks it has some justifiable reason for the search. And a judge could very well order the release of this affidavit redacting the names as appropriate of any informants or witnesses or other sources. So this is something that can be done and, quite frankly, should be done. A lot of the the legal analysis I've seen recently suggests that this is much more 
than the Presidential Records Act of 1978. This is somewhat of a fishing expedition when it comes to January 6th. What involvement Trump had? Can they indict him on some sort of charge? Uh, what do you make of those analysis? Well, I think many times when you have ongoing federal investigations that overlap, a lot of it is a fishing expedition. A lot of it is an attempt to see what else you can find or whether you can bring any other charges that you may not have thought of. Uh, I, I think those are very valid concerns, that this is a fishing expedition to get into the president's records and see all of the documents that he has and, and see where they lead or if there are any connections to January 6th or anything else. The problem is that if that's the case, then the basis for the affidavit would be uh, spurious. There would be some sort of uh, falsifying statements made in order to obtain the warrant, and then the FBI would be in the hot seat. Last question, and probably unfair, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, if you were advising the president— Right now, this morning, what sort of advice would you give him and how to react, how to respond, how to navigate these complex waters? Well, my, my advice to him is that, you know, he, his calls for transparency are spot on. We need to know that this is not a politicized or a political search warrant or investigation. But I'd also call on him. I would suggest to him that he because he was the classifying authority and he now claims that the documents he took were declassified, he needs to come forward with that. I think transparency on his side is equally important to calm the rhetoric and, and calm the agitation of the anger that many Americans feel at this, at, the, at this intrusion. So I, I recommend to him that if he has these documents that lay out how the declassification process worked, that would end the argument right there. If he had no classified documents because they were declassified and all this, all this other information is irrelevant, that's what it comes down to. Thank you, Mr. Felitti. Appreciate your time. Have a great day, sir. Thank you so much. You as well. It's kind of an interesting take from a lawyer, somebody who understand, uh, understands the um, the legal difficulty that Trump has or not. I'm going to go back real quick, and then we'll go to the phone. We've got a call. I want to get there. Mm-hmm. But um, so so you agree with Larry's analysis. I mean, to me, Teal's the poster child. Elon Musk would be another poster child. We know those guys are brilliant, right? I mean, no it, doubt Musk is it. a bigger household name than, than Teal is, but I mean, they co-founded PayPal together. Um, academically, they've excelled at everything they've ever done. Um, and then they, I don't know, Riff, some people make a lot of money because they're smarter than everybody. I think those two guys would probably agree to that. I mean, I don't know that Teal and Musk, I mean, obviously they're not lazy, but but are they harder workers than uh, most other Americans? I don't know. They just have, uh, they, they have a gift. I mean, let's be honest. They have a gift. I mean, they, they're, they're, they were born smarter and with more intellectual capacity than most other human beings. Uh, would you accept that? Sure. Okay. I mean, yeah. that, that's not humbling. I mean, that's that's just a reality. That's a practical reality. Some people are born smarter than other people are. And I think Larry's point about painting the portrait or writing the poetry, um, the most effective people in America today don't have to write the poetry as long as they can paint the picture. And that's kind of the genius. Uh, and, and it's what inspires me. I mean, here's what inspires me about Trump. You ready? Trump can paint the picture. I don't know that Trump can write the poetry. Um, I'm not, not for, I, no, I don't believe Trump's dumb for a second. I mean, I know the media tries to paint him as buffoonish and, you know, kind of a, I don't know, Rev, the, uh, the, the, the character from central casting when it comes to buffoonish politician. I mean, I don't buy that for a second. The guys ended up on the good side of a multi-billion dollar real estate conglomerate. Now that doesn't mean you're rocket scientist. It means you're hardworking and dedicated. And there's an old saying, you know, uh, to the future, go the bold. Um, you know, or the bowl will own the future. So he's a bold man, no question about it. He signed bank notes and borrowed money when a lot of other people were nervous or afraid to do what it was. He's failed. I mean, he's failed miserably at certain times. We're talking about Atlantic City yesterday. Um, I mean, that's a failure. 
he, he got some of those businesses went bankrupt. But 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 the to me the inspiring part of all this, and I'm getting into weeds a little bit here, and this is not what you normally talk about on conservative radio. But I've always believed that if America First is to sustain and it's to change American politics in some way, shape, or form, and I think we've got a chance. I mean, I think we've really got a chance today in America to radically reform our nation's government. I mean, I think there are times in our nation where there's an opportunity and there's people who are committed to taking advantage you, of that opportunity. You say that comfortably knowing how the forces have lined up against the attempt to reform that we've had over the last four years? The alignment years. of the forces is more encouraging than anything. Okay. If, if the forces didn't perceive this to be a legitimate threat, they'd wait it out. That They would just hunker down for an election cycle or two and they'd wait it out. The forces have measured and accounted and concluded that they are at threat. They're at risk. I mean, their, their perpetual ownership or leadership over the government is, is highly questionable right now. And, and I don't think they're afraid of just Donald Trump, the portrait painter, uh, you know, the, um, the picture painter. I don't think they're just afraid of, of Teal or some of these dark enlighteners. They're afraid of the convergence. Is there a place where Teal and, and some of these, and th- there's, a, there's an arrogance with these dark enlighteners there's a curiosity with these dark enlighteners. I mean, Trump is who he is, right? I mean, you, you know this. I mean, if I said Donald Trump is a political blunt instrument, I mean, you would say, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about that. If I said that Donald Trump is the force du jour in the Republican Party today, you would say, there's no doubt about it. But if I said, okay, Rev, what is the dark enlighteners? You know, what, what are these folks who have exposed the cathedral? You, you would have a hard time at painting that picture, right? That's right. I mean, you, you would go, I, I don't to, know, try man. To, I, try to describe I, it. I, I've listened to you say what you think they are. And, and, you know, you've never led me astray yet, so I'm, I'm kind of kind of riding your coattails on. I mean, is that a fair analysis? Yep. I mean, you say, Very hey, fair. man, I know how much you've read about it and how much videos you've watched about it. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to kind of defer to you and let you explain the cathedral. Well, once again, if the, if the status quo, let's use the cathedral. Let's use their word uh, instead of the status quo or the elite establishment or the deep state. If the cathedral were not concerned about this Trump movement, once again, they'd hunker down. They, they'd say, okay, I mean, you know, this, this will take an election cycle or two. might take 10 or 12 years, but it'll sort itself out. The Tea Party did. The Christian Conservative did. Um, the Fiscal Coalition. I mean, all these fits and rages we've had. And, and, and the, the resistance never resisted like this. They never organized as they have in pushing back against this America First movement. And, and I believe the reason they push back is they believe this time it's different. And I don't believe they're afraid of Teal by himself. I don't believe they're afraid of Trump by himself. But they see a potential convergence of these dark enlighteners and Donald Trump. They can write the poetry. Trump can paint the picture. And sell it to the masses. And sell it to the American people. The voters. There you go. 75 million people bought his version of what Teal and those had painted uh, or written. The, the poetry they had written. And it really comes down to trade and immigration in China. And I think Liz Cheney's an embodiment. Of, of the establishment. I mean, she's a Republican, but who is more of a cathedralist than the Cheneys? You know, the, the irony of this, you listen to the Cheneys lecture to the Republican base about morality and ethics and virtue, and uh, there, there's so much irony in here. You know, Trump is the most dangerous man in American political history. I mean, I've heard father and daughter say that the reason we're doing this is Donald Trump is the most dangerous man in American political history, and he has to be taken off the field. He has to be dealt with accordingly. How many young men are limping because of Donald Trump? How many people have had half their heads blown off 
because of Donald Trump. How many people are getting houses retrofitted because they don't have legs because of Donald Trump? How many families don't have a kid any longer because of Donald Trump? Did Donald Trump mislead about weapons of mass destruction? Did Donald Trump have a hand in convincing Colin Powell to say something that was just completely and totally inaccurate? Now, now we can argue about whether they were misled or whether they lied. Did they believe there were weapons of mass destruction? Did their intelligence agencies um, coordinate with agencies all over the world? Or was it, you know, intentional? I don't know. We'll never know the answer to that. But, but all I know is this, for Dick Cheney to stand before the American people and say how dangerous Donald Trump is, is pretty damn rich. About as rich as it comes, as far as I'm concerned. And I, for one, am unbelievably excited that we've seen the last of the Cheney, Bush, Clinton dynasty. If you want to talk about Trump wiping the slate clean, he's exposed the Bush dynasty, dealt with them and beat them. He's exposed the Clinton dynasty, dealt with them and beat them. And now he's exposed the Cheney dynasty, dealt with them and beat them. That's 3-0. and oh. And one of the three, I mean, these are the three most prominent political aristocracies of our time. I mean, really and truly. Bill Clinton gets elected twice. His wife becomes a senator, secretary of state, presidential candidate. Trump beats her. Dick Cheney, probably the most forceful vice president in my lifetime. No, ain't no probably to it. I mean, Cheney was president 2-0. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, uh, I think George W. Bush would have been far better off had Dick Cheney not been his vice president. But once again, to, to, the, to the families who have lost loved ones in these presidential wars, to the, to the families who have family members who don't have legs, don't have arms, have had have their face blown. We've seen them in this honor event. We've watched these young people walk in this damn studio on crutches with prosthetics and the Cheneys are going to lecture to the American people about how dangerous Donald Trump is, stop with that. And we've got to be serious enough to see it for exactly what it is. It's not about doing the right thing. It's not about what's best for the American people. It's about maintaining power. And anybody that threatens the Cheney's power, the Clinton's power, the Bush's power, uh, the, the establishment's power, the cathedral power, has to be dealt with accordingly. So to your comment, Reb, it worries you how organized they are in, uh, you know, defiance of Donald Trump. That's the most encouraging part of this to me. Hmm. They can't afford to wait him out. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Couple of callers there. Let's go to the phone. Yeah, I'm just over here trying to deeply think through this morning's show best I can. Try well, to keep do. up. You can handle it. Yeah. I mean, I can fake it with the best of them. <laughs> I, I can, I can paint a picture that isn't really the picture. Do you think it is? <laughs> of course. That's kind of what I do every morning. Anyway, Breeze. Breeze is our next caller. Hey, Breeze. You know, um, I think the mistake I've made, we've all made, is most of our lives, we thought just because the person was a Republican, he was on our side. And then, you know, I started thinking what you were talking about, the cathedral, whatever you may be able to call it. I, wonder, I was wondering, how long has this been going on? And, and in other words, when did this all start? And when did people start realizing that it was going on? And then I was looking at something on history, and I'm kind of a history buff, and I'd forgotten it from my military history, but they were talking about Vietnam and how um, we basically won the war. You know, we bombed Hanoi down to oblivion, and then we turned around and had the Paris Peace Accords. And what was going to stop the North, and it was going to stop it, was is we said we will continue to send military hardware and so forth to the South Vietnamese. 
at the very same way you got the Ukrainian situation. So then when the daggone archive came for us to do that, Nixon gets uh, presides from office, and then the Democrats take over, and they totally defund the military, and so they aren't sending anything over to South Vietnam. President Ford begs them to, which I think was a bunch of bull to begin with, and then, then you turn back to Ukraine. Here you have Republicans talking about wanting to defund, sending money to the Ukraine. You see where I'm going? The Democrats, the Democrats do that in Vietnam, and Republicans. You know, I mean, there's there's no rhyme or reason a lot of times of what they're doing unless they're on the same team. So basically, the Republicans want to defund sending aid to the Ukraine, which probably should because they're corrupt. The South Vietnamese were corrupt too, but I mean the whole thing gets damn confusing. And I'm just, you know, and I'm just wondering how organized we are to fight this thing. And then when people start talking about fighting, what exactly do they mean by fighting? I know it's not fist fighting because we got too many cupcakes in this country. But what is, what do they mean by fighting? How do you fight against the cathedral? Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, you got to believe, okay, the cathedral believes in something. Well, what does the cathedral believe in? Well, I mean, I, I've identified things. They, they believe in open borders. They believe in globalism. They believe in climate change. That They believe in, in you know, trade deals that export a lot of the prosperity of the American middle class. I mean, I think we can defend. I mean, I think we can argue clearly that the Republicans have been complicit in that. I mean, the Democrats are all on board. But the Republicans have been very complicit. So, so to if you identify a problem, then how do you fix it? I mean, it's 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 these aren't problems that are easy to identify. I mean, these are hard to identify. The the, the rank and file American citizen watching Seinfeld doesn't have the time, nor wants to expend the effort it takes to really understand the fundamental flaws of allowing. I mean, if you sat down at, at lunch today and somebody sat down beside you, you said, "Hey, you got time to talk? Yeah, what's going on? Um, what do you think about the American government?" ordaining, blessing, advocating for China joining the World Trade Organization in 2001. You know what that person would probably do? Get up and walk off. Man, I'm eating lunch. I don't have time for all that. Um, but we've identified, or I think, I mean, I think I have, I can't speak for the masses. I think I have identified three or four or five things that that we could sink our teeth in and radically change. The You know, the one thing Trump has done, and I think he deserves a lot of credit here, very seldom does a president show up and change both political parties' opinion about an issue or subject or topic. Trump changed everybody in Washington about China. I mean, for a long time, we were led to believe that China's our, you know, yeah, they see the world a bit differently than we do, but we're all trying to get to know. No. I mean, they see us the preeminent superpower in the world, and they desire to be the preeminent superpower in the world. So Trump changed both political parties' opinion about China. I mean, they were probably, you know, drag kicking and screaming. But, but those are the issues. I mean, Breeze makes a point. What are we fighting for? To me, we're fighting for the American people. Globalism has not been good for the American people. Open borders is not good for the American people. Um, interventionism is not good for the American people. Spending money in Ukraine is not good for the American people. All, all the lives lost and the money spent in Afghanistan and Iraq were not good for the American people. So let's develop an agenda that at the center of has the interest, the genuine interest of the American people. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Hey, Mike, you're on the air. I tell you, I agree with you a hundred percent there on that. Uh, and I agree. Uh, I think, uh, 
uh, Breeds asked a real important question: How do we defeat the the cathedral? But there's there's a situation you're talking about. Uh, people have deep thinkers and uh, not so deep thinkers. But uh, uh, you talk about people like Adams and Jefferson. They had a practical bent. They did practical things. Jefferson invented useful things. Uh, uh, Adams understood that you had to have fertilizer to make the crops grow in New England. He understood that we had to have trade and we had to get some support from other places if we hoped to defeat this uh, empire uh, of the, of uh, Great Britain. But uh, they were practical men as well as deep thinkers. It's like uh, trying to teach somebody uh, – this is a sports analogy. You might understand if uh, you – you can teach somebody where to where to put their feet, how to hold their shoulders, how to follow through on the swing, and um, if, if they don't have time and they can't do it, my son could do it from the time he was like five years old. He he could pick left field, right field, center field, but they uh, uh, I tried to teach his cousins and they just didn't have the time and to do it, and they loved baseball more than any than, than my son ever did. And they lived it, but they just did not have the time and the hit the way you need to hit. And um, that, and some people don't have that instinctive timing, and and some people do, and some people don't. I don't know what it is, but I uh, tell my kids, "Thank you, Mike. I got to take a break, hard heartbreak, top of the hour." I tell my kids all the time, you know, talent's a gift from God. Attitude and effort's a choice you make every single day, all day, every day. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. We have with us on the phone Congressman Ralph Norman uh, from Rock Hill. Ralph is um a member of. Uh, Ralph's actually been a member. Ralph's done a lot of things politically and and in business. And we're trying to digest and go through the um the Inflation Reduction Act that won't reduce inflation. Uh, may affect the climate in some way, shape, or form. But Ralph is with us this morning, Congressman. Good morning. How are you? Well, great. Good morning. So I thought that you would probably give as good an analysis as anybody about the recent legislation passed by a slim Democrat majority of the House and Senate vice president coming over to break the tie. And it's a factor impact on business, because at the end of the day, we're trying to dig out of a, um, a recession, some economic malaise. From your perspective, as someone who has been in the business world all of his life, now a member of Congress, what do we make of it, Congressman? First of all, Ken, the proper name is the Inflation Insanity Act, <laughs> 730 pages long. Would any of your listeners sign, agree to anything without reading uh, a two-page document, much less 730 pages? I doubt there are more than a handful of congressmen that were able to read it. This bill did not go through the regular order through the committee where you have amendments, where you have Bar, you know, you, you you go back and forth with the pros and the cons. This is a forced amendment. That's why you saw it along party lines. Uh, no Democrat voted against it. No Republican voted for it. Basically, what the American people are looking at uh, is inflation again on steroids. 87,000 new IRS agents. The Clemson football stadium holds 82.5, I think, or 82,500. You're talking about a stadium that can't even hold who they're talking about hiring. Uh, you're talking about a bill that I would say is, you know, $800 billion. You might as well call it a trillion. Uh, this administration has spent $3.8 trillion to date with no offsets. And let me give your listeners something of where your money is going. 
uh, 1.3 billion for climate justice. Somebody explained to me what that means. A billion for heavy duty vehicles, 27 billion for basically an EPA slush fund, a billion three for planting trees. I mean, you just can't think this state stuff up, Ken. Now, what's it going to do to business when you go? Well, what's it going to do that to, to every American that goes to buy products at the store? Uh, you're going to have increases like we've never seen before. I went to get a battery for a 12-year-old Ford 150 truck. I got the last battery, and this wasn't some exotic battery. It's a standard battery for a pickup truck. I was going to have to wait probably three months to four months before I could get a battery had I not gotten the last one. Bottom line, it's a uh, the, the American people don't realize what's coming our way, and November will help, but we've got to have a president uh, that does not hate the American people, and we've got to have a, a new body that hopefully will put handcuffs on this spending. Housing, which is what I've done for 45 years, so goes housing, so goes the economy, because you have so many different trades affected. I wouldn't start a, a project now because you can't – I mean, time is money. And if you can't get different products that – you know, like water heaters, uh, like sheetrock, like just the different components, I mean, you're stuck you're in the middle of the water without a paddle. So anyway, it's a uh, – it's, uh, it's, we haven't seen this type of increases in a long time, 40-year high on, on the inflation numbers. Ralph, let's stay there for a second, and let's talk a little bit about um, some of the frustration I hear within the Republican orbit, and that is when the Democrats are in charge, damn it, they get things done. Whether you like what they get done or not, they get things done. When the Republicans are in charge, that they walk tepidly. They, they, they don't aggressively pursue an agenda. They, they don't do the America's uh, the conservatives' business in, in the way the the Democrats do is that fair criticism, and what can we do to change that? Well, I mean, it's easy. The Democrats do it because most of them are career politicians. They've never been in the business arena like you and I have. Unless you've made money and lost money, you really can't have an appreciation of what it takes to, to you know. Capitalism is the greatest form of government that's that's ever been known to 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 keep. Uh, our economy going. And it is fair. I mean, as far as Republicans going, you're only as good as your weakest link. It's up to us now, particularly with the crisis we're facing on so many fronts. We can't take milk toast politicians. Uh, we can't paint in pastel colors. We got to be pretty bold. I'm in the Freedom Caucus. We got a list of things up for any speaker to look at that we, we, we've got a work cut out. And we've got to be, we've got to come together. Now, Democrats are like lemmings. They just follow what Pelosi does, says, and dictates because she controls their money. Republicans are made up of, a lot of us are business people. And yes, we're going to argue. Yes, we're going to question things. But that's a good thing. At the end of the day, we've got to not only talk a conservative game, we've got to do it. We can't have another Paul Ryan where we had the House, the Senate, and the executive branch. We, we got to we got to make some moves in November, which the good news, I think we will. And I think we got to got to have any new spending. You got to have offsets. A seven-year budget is the only thing I'm going to vote for. These 20-year budgets are a joke, and nobody believes them, and rightfully so. So it's 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 all about now recognize the problem and doing something about it. 
And and I think I'm optimistic that we will do that. And if we don't, we'll feel the wrath of the American people. Congressman, there's a debate within the party. I'd love to hear where you stand here. There are some within the party that believe we need to move past Donald Trump, that the Trump era has come and gone. There's a new dawning, a new day, someone other than uh, he needs to lead us into the future. I think it's imperative that Trump stays at the table. He stays intimately involved in this transitioning uh, of the Republican Party. Where do you land there? Donald Trump is one of the greatest presidents we've had. Look at the successes we've had with the Supreme Court. Had it not been for his nominees, which were confirmed, we wouldn't have the Dobbs case. Uh, We wouldn't have the reins on the EPA like we did. We wouldn't have the Second Amendment reaffirmed in the New York versus the uh, the, the pistol club where New York was trying to put strings on, you know, the citizens. No, Donald Trump, whether you like his personality, if, if you, I've been around him a good bit, as many others have, he's a great guy. He loves this country. Now, is he a businessman? Yes. Is he a New Yorker? Yes. But look what he did for this country. And my, if anybody can sit back and look what they've done to this man, with the raid, with you know, it's it's insane. They they know they can't beat him at the polls. Can name me one politician that can have that can get ten to twenty thousand people at a rally. Uh, President Biden couldn't fill six circles up with people, uh, and you know he's he's an imbecile. Uh, and not only that, he's not even running the country. But no, I'm a firm Trump supporter now more than ever. They're not going to knock him out, regardless of what they're going to try to charge him with, with this, with this home invasion, whether evidence is planted, uh, you know, will we'll hopefully be seen, you know, soon, sooner rather than later, if it was. But to do what they did to him, go into his house, crack his safe, go into his wife's closet, not allow the, uh, any uh, lawyers to be present, not to see what they took out, and now won't release what's in the affidavit. To, that gave them the authority to do what they did to this man. Where's the Where's the raid on Hillary Clinton when she taught, when she erased the the um, her computer? Where's Hunter Biden? Kenny had 150 SAR special uh, suspicious activity reports. You've been on the bank board. That's one is serious, but to have 150? No, it's a two tiered system of justice. Donald Trump needs to be the next president. I think he will be, regardless of what happens uh, with the far left who want to uh, to kneecap him and make sure he doesn't run. Last question: As a member of Congress, um, you you're more than likely going to be in the majority come January. We don't know that for sure, but the odds are the percentages look like most of the polling I see says you know 15 to 40 seats that puts Republicans in charge. Uh, many of your voters believe the DOJ is corrupt. The FBI has uh, become politically motivated. Would you support investigating some of these agencies and entities that have been so investigatory of Donald Trump? Absolutely. You know, the lady justice is, is a balance. It has not been balanced. Every committee, the, the good news is for your listeners, every committee, once the Republicans take over, has subpoena powers. I'm on oversight committee in financial services. We will subpoena Mayorkas, and we'll subpoena uh, Merrick Garland. We'll subpoena a host of others and, and put them under a withering, uh, let them perjure themselves, which I think they'll do. But, yes, I'll definitely support that, and that's, I think that's what most Republicans, if not all, cannot wait to do because it's been an injustice on this country and the taxpayers and the American citizens are paying the bills through the taxes that we're going to incur. 
congressman very well explained appreciate their time keep up the good work and anytime uh, we can be a conduit to your voters and our listeners let us know Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Congressman Ralph Norman, who lives in Rock Hill, um, that area has experienced enormous growth, some of the backfield of Charlotte. Ralph and I developed a friendship. Believe it or not, Ralph was a candidate for lieutenant governor when I announced my candidacy. Oh. And um, John Spratt fell ill, and Mick Mulvaney ended up winning that race, beat John Spratt. Mick gets a job. Uh, it's kind of interesting how political fates and futures uh, intertwine and entangle themselves. So let me get this right. So Mulvaney beat Spratt. In 10, when I got elected lieutenant governor, Mulvaney gets appointed to a position by Trump. That leaves that seat vacated. Ralph runs for that seat and gets elected to Congress. So there's always a domino that falls that allows somebody else to uh, kind of step in the gap, so to speak. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Verd in Marlboro County. Hey, Verd. Good morning. How y'all doing? Hey, Verd. How are you? You just had one of the best congressmen in the country on a good friend of mine, Ralph Norman. I'm like you, Ken. I got to know him over the last two or three years, and he's just uh, one heck of a daggum South Carolina and a great American. And I uh, just appreciate everything he does to uh, uh, keep everything right. Um, great win last night for uh, President Trump, and uh, I guess that finishes off the uh, – the 10 uh, House members, uh, two of them did make it back in, but I doubt they'll have very much support in Washington. But it was just uh, amazing. I hadn't, I'm hadn't. i just getting off work, Ken, so I hadn't heard what I was going on this morning. But, God knows what an amazing win and an amazing defeat for Liz Cheney. Yeah, I mean, she. Um, I went back and read. Thank you, Vert. Appreciate it. Appreciate all the work you do on behalf of the party. September 9, 2021, Liz Cheney sent a tweet. Why does that day ring a bell? That's the day Trump endorsed Harriet Hageman. So Trump sends out an email um, from Save America, Save America letterhead, and it says that he um, he is now endorsing Harriet Hageman. Some of the language in there is um, uh, bring change to Wyoming. So Liz Cheney tweets a copy of the Save America letterhead and the endorsement letter and highlights bring it on or bring change to Wyoming. And Cheney puts in her own words, bring it on. Well, with 99% of the um, the votes counted, Hagman has 66.3% of the vote. Cheney has 28.9% of the vote. I'd say Trump brung it. <laughs> More than double. I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, wow. you know, that, that's called a whooping where I come wow. from. Well, I mean, let's be let's be candid. We got to be gut level honest here. We've always said we're, there's a difference in a whooping and an ass whooping. I mean, that that's one of the latter. I mean, that that's an absolute thrashing, uh, an incumbent. Now she's talking about running for president. You know, she she um, referred to herself as Lincoln, and, you know, was Lincoln that? was persistent. Well, I mean, they had the backdrop. They had the television producer. It looked like a movie set well, I mean, production th- but, but or television But listen production. to me, I don't know if you knew this or not, but the television producer and crew who were working for the January 6th commission were on site in Wyoming <laughs> broadcasting her were. announcement for president. Because when I was? think Liz Cheney, I think Abraham Lincoln. I mean, I can't separate the two. <laughs> uh, the pantsuit fits a little bit different. <laughs> Gained a few LBs. Um, (laughs) But that's what happens when you live in McLean, Virginia, and frequent cocktail parties with status quo, um, you know, politicians of either party, the consulting, and, you know, the the establishment class, so to speak. Um, Trump has dispensed of the Clinton dynasty, the Bush dynasty, and now the Cheney dynasty. So when it comes to dynasties, I mean, Trump is not uh, in the business of political dynasties, I don't think. We'll find out if Ivanka or Eric or Don Jr. run for office. Then I guess you're 
uh, kind of trying to advance, you know, nepotism in politics. Imagine that. But um, but I just think it's very interesting that Cheney gets 29% of the vote in her second home state because Virginia's her home. I mean, she lives in Virginia. She's from Virginia. She's educated in Virginia. She's seen her wealth go from three to about 30 million. I mean, I saw a report last night, 15 million. It's actually closer to 25 or 30 million How do you do that as a resident. Well, I mean, you just make real good decisions. I mean, you're just one of these deep thinkers. You're highly intelligent. You you know where um, to, you know, just, I mean, you're a cut above. Isn't that what elite means? <laughs> elite. Yeah, right. you're an elite. Look, guys, I want to go back to something we said last week, and then we'll take our, our break. Nobody supports elitism more than me. I mean, I believe in elitism. I, I think the country is far better off when elites run it. You know what elite means? Look it up in the dictionary. You're just better. Nothing about our government today suggests that these people are elites. They self-appointed themselves elites, that they've taken advantage of, I don't know, ref, some loose description of the word, a loose definition of the word, their establishment, their status quo, um, they're they're uh, entrenched. I mean, there are a lot of things they are. Elite is not one because if our nation was run by true elites, that means they're run by people that are just better than the rest. And people that are just better than the rest don't spend a trillion dollars every year they don't have. Don't pass a bill called the Inflation Reduction Act that they admit doesn't reduce inflation. Uh, that That's not elitism. That's establishment-oriented politics and i think it's been a great travesty to the country um 843-661-0937 do we have a call okay no call um love to hear what you got to say uh thank you ralph thank you ralph norman for coming on um and you guys kind of set that up lined that up thank you very much to the two of you we'll take a break we'll be back in just a couple of minutes i'll pose another question i'm good at asking questions of which i don't have answers is this the death of neocon i mean did neoconservatism die last night in wyoming I'm trying to be a little bit hyperbolic here and, and provocative, but did um, I mean did the did the did the era of Bush, Cheney, Romney, because uh, Romney was a globalist and a neocon, uh, an interventionist and the nominee McCain. Yeah, he threw his name in the in the mix as well. So last night was that neoconservatism's last stand, and it is the uh, I mean we know it's in decline. There's no question about it. And and are the only holdouts neocons? Because you got about 20%. We debated what the number was yesterday. And I think somebody was alarmed when I said, I think it's 20 or 25%. I have no idea what that number is. I think when you look at the Rice race, when you look at the Cheney race, when you look at some of the other races that Trump's endorsement and Trump's impeachment were in play, um, Murkowski's different. And Murkowski's different because Alaska is fundamentally um, different. But, but I think when you, when you try to um, take the micro and juxtapose the macro, you probably do end up with a fair debate and question to consider, was Liz Cheney's defeat? And it was a thumping defeat. I mean, it was a, it was a, you know, it was a romp, so to speak. Um, was that the end of the, let's call it the Bush, McCain, Cheney, Romney era of the Republican Party? Um, the, the period of time of the GOP that neoconservatism was the dominant political, I don't want to say theory, but it is to some degree a political theory. It's a political agenda without question. And, um, you know, her losing in the in the in just the overwhelming fashion that she did. I mean, Ch- Cheney had a lot of problems. She didn't live in Wyoming is one, <laughs> you know, living in McLean, Virginia, but calling yourself, it doesn't, it, you know. It, it kind of depend on the people who do get into elected in office and replacing these people. 
how they act once they get into I, I would imagine. But but once again, I'm trying to look for something that nobody's talking about. And and when I look there, I see this run that neoconservatism had in, in the Republican Party. And obviously, America First is not predicated upon. I mean, it would be the opposite of neoconservatism. Um, let's shift gears and go to the current president. Um, Joe Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act yesterday. Um, Fox News Radio's Jared Halperin is in our nation's capital. Uh, Jared, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Actually, a fascinating question you pose about Liz Cheney. Well, I mean, I, I just uh, wonder that. And then once again, I wonder well, a lot I, of things I, that I, I don't have answers honestly, to. Honestly, I think a lot of people would say that ended with the nomination of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there were right. some holdouts, and there remain some holdouts in the Republican <laughs> there are. Party. Um, uh, and, you know, and, and listen, I think part of the reason Liz Cheney decided to stay in that race, knowing that she was likely to, to lose in the fashion that she lost last night, is because she still uh, maintains a mission uh, to reorient uh, the Republican Party uh, in a way that, you know, looks like the Republican Party of her father. Right. Um, and, and listen, I think if you it's another fascinating question, too, when you sort of look at Liz Cheney. Outside of the January 6th, stuff, right? remove that factor from it, which is obviously the overriding factor in the race. But her actual voting record in the House of Representatives is as conservative as any other House Republican. Right. So a lot of it is not about policy. A lot of it is about sort of the idea of of Trump. Right. And, mm-hmm. and his influence on that party regardless of the policies. It's not as if she's anti-Trump in policies, right? She voted for the tax cuts. She voted for, you know, the border wall stuff. She uh, was was with him on the policy stuff. She was against him when it came to January 6th. Jared, the only contribution I can make to the political discussion is, and the only relevancy I bring, is a, an attachment connection, relatability to the uh, to the primary voter in South Carolina. I have no idea what the primary vote in yeah. Wyoming think. I mean, I, I got to believe there are stark yeah, I mean, similarities. Look, Wyoming, Wyoming, as 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 red a state, I think. Cool. Don't quote me on it because I'd have to go back and look. But I think why Trump won Wyoming by a wider margin than any other state. Yeah, right? but, what, what, but I, I, Republican. Yeah, state. I ran and, statewide in South Carolina, and South Carolina is a plus nine state. It's a plus nine red state, very red. Wyoming's about plus fourteen, plus fifteen. Um, I, I mean, think the, it's higher than that. I, yeah. I think it's like plus thirty. Okay, well, I mean, so, so it's 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 redder than South Carolina, and we're pretty red. But but the point much, I want to make, much, and and, yeah. and and I think yeah. I think the I don't know the discussion that needs to be had, but I think the discussion that is lacking is this. This inside the beltway belief that there's a genuine struggle for the heart and soul of the Republican Party outside of the beltway, there's not. I mean, we look at Tom Rice's no, race here. No, when I you think, look at Liz Cheney, I mean that that that, that battle's over. Where the Republican Party is. Yeah. Um, now, part of that part of that too is the primary process, right? And you know this is if you're running for president, and it's not just the Republicans. I'd really either party, either of the major parties. What does it take to win a nomination? For 35 percent usually, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Um, and so if that's a minority, but it's a strong enough minority that you can sort of, you know, have an awful lot of influence. I mean, it's not as if Joe Biden was elected in the Republic, in the Democratic nomination by like some wide mandate. Right. I mean, he he lost the first states by pretty big margins and was able at the end to sort of cobble together the, the type of coalition that you need. Uh, Donald Trump was able to do that in 2016. We'll see if he's able to do that in 2020. I guess everybody think everybody thinks he's going to run again. We'll see, um, but there will be a lane for somebody like Liz Cheney or a Larry Hogan, right? But 
it's pretty narrow, and I don't know if you can get 30 or 35 percent in in a lane like that with where the Republican Party is right now. Yeah, I think the number's somewhere between 18 and 25. I mean, that's just my, uh, you know, yeah, taking the data. That high end, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let, let's go to, um, to Joe Biden. Yesterday signed the Inflation sure, sure. Reduction Act. No, no, that's fine. I mean, and, and I could do this all. In fact, I do it half a day, you know, <laughs> five days a week. So, <laughs> um, so, so welcome to the uh, to the debate and conversation. But yesterday, um, I want to make sure we t- stay to the task at hand. Um, Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act um, there's a big debate about whether it reduces inflation or not, but it yeah. does make big investments in green energy, um, climate policy. There's some things about health care in here and yeah. 87,000 IRS agents added to, um, the most feared government agency in, in America. Um, what, what do we yeah. make of the bill and the IRS so much when they get that, that refund? And there, there, yeah, you're right. I haven't got one of those in a long, long time. So maybe I don't remember that as well, but I mean, it, it will be a part of, uh, the 2022 midterms as well Absolutely. as the 24 and presidential the, election. President Biden's going to hit the road next week and start selling this in the way that he tried to sell it yesterday. Um, because let's look at what it does from an electoral standpoint, right? It allows Medicare to directly negotiate prescription drug prices, right? That will bring down prescription drug prices for seniors. It caps out-of-pocket expenses uh, for seniors. Now, there were some proposals initially that would make that beyond Medicare for everybody. Those were too expensive. They didn't get in. But why is it important to focus on Medicare? We're talking about seniors. Which block of voters is the most likely to vote in the midterm elections? Seniors. That's right. No question so, about it. <laughs> so, so, I mean, and so that that's going to be a big part of the push. Um, you look at um, the, it also uh, uh, extends um, uh, subsidies through the Affordable Care Act. So people who have insurance through the Affordable Care Act extends those subsidies through when? Beyond the 2024 election. Correct. 2025. Not a day longer, but in the 2025. <laughs> but, but could the risky part of this be um, naming it the Inflation Reduction Act? We get a year down the road. We have an increase in price yeah. of gas. I mean, in other words, it doesn't address inflation. No, I mean, listen, I... I I don't know if there's a, a silver bullet out there that, that would. I think if there were, we would have seen it pass already, right? But um, you know, the, what Democrats are saying is that, listen, it, it's going to take on the cost of living. It's going to make prescription drugs cheaper. It's going to make energy cheaper with these investments in alternative fuels. It's going to um, bring down tax burdens for smaller businesses because of the, the corporate uh, taxes that are added to the equation. So... They're looking at inflation, I think, in sort of the more like cost of living and not necessarily like what you're paying for gas, what you're paying for food, what you're paying for rent, because it's probably not going to touch those, certainly not in the short term, in the same way that the other bills that they've said are going to bring down inflation, like the computer chip bill. It will, but that, that, not overnight, right? I mean, it's not as if these companies that are going to get grant money for building semiconductor facilities are, are up and running today, right? It's going to take years to, to get that stuff down the road. And so that's going to be the tough part of the sell, right, is, listen, we passed this legislation. It's going to bring down costs, but it may not bring down cost right away. And that's always the challenge with these types of, of bills and this type of legislation. Very well explained. Jared, you're always a great guest. Thank you very much for this Thank extended you. session that you spent with us. Anytime. Yeah, thanks a lot. Kind of an interesting guy inside the belly of the beast, so to speak. Um, who influenced Manchin to vote yes? I mean, that's kind of an interesting question to ask. I mean, was it Schumer? Schumer is my assumption. Bill Gates. Say what? Bill Gates. Bill Gates convinced Joe Manchin to vote for a scaled-down version of Build Back Better. 
Um, What's he going to do for him? Well, I mean, you tell me that. You know, um, Bloomberg had an article yesterday. I actually got some parts of the article um, that that basically walked through um, the billionaire um, tech gazillionaire who's turned into what? Uh, Philanthropist. I mean, to some degree, in the Bill and Melinda Gates about saving the world, making the world a better place. Um, Vaccinations and medications are something they've been very committed to. Um, And I guess climate is something else they have a lot of interest in. But Bill Gates hosted a dinner in Washington, D.C. in 2019 that was attended by um, almost everybody on the Energy Committee in the U.S. Senate. The topic of the discussion at the dinner was the role of innovation in climate. So Gates can host anybody he wants to. I mean, he's got enough money to rent any room, uh, any banquet room in any hotel in Washington. Uh, And when Gates invites you, guess what? You probably show up, especially if you're a Democrat. So Bloomberg reported that Gates hosts a dinner in Washington. Um, Manchin is cordially invited. You got to believe. In the interim, Manchin began cutting off some of the conversations, discussions about Build Back Better. Uh, And later they even came back to him with this, uh, I don't know, Rev, a uh, a reduced or a pared down climate bill. And um, Gates continued talking to Manchin when he and Schumer were not talking to one another. Um, And Manchin felt Gates listened to some of his, um, I don't know, the the position he was in. In other words, being from West Virginia, uh, can't vote for a real liberal energy bill. Um, Gates persisted and Manchin announced on December 19, 2021, that he would not support Build Back Better. Um, Gates asked for a lunch with West Virginia Senator. Um, Manchin's asked if he could bring his wife. So Manchin, his wife, and Bill Gates ate lunch um, in Washington in a very um, discreet location. Still hadn't told where it was. Um, but Gates told Bloomberg... They discussed the needs of West Virginia, at which time the billionaire suggested that if coal power plants and mining jobs are eliminated, I love when Rev really pays me attention. I mean, he, <laughs> you I, can I, tell. I, yeah, he never does, but right now he's like, what the hell is he talking about? I, I, I heard wanna, this. I want to hear this yeah, story. Yeah, I want to hear this now. What yeah. is Bill Gates doing? So so anyway, they have this lunch. I mean, it's funny when you look at me like, okay, I'm really listening yeah, now. I'm paying attention I mean, this now. isn't the normal nonsense. I mean, this this is something that may, may have some- um, Peaks my attention. Yeah, this may have some underpinning to it. So, um, so Gates, Manchin, and his wife are discussing the needs of West Virginia over lunch. Got to believe Gates picked up the tab. I probably couldn't have. That'd be a contribution. In-kind contribution needs to be disclosed. It's disclosed. Um, so the billionaire suggested, the billionaire being Gates, um, that if coal power plants and mining jobs are eliminated, those workers, this is interesting, you ready? Those workers may be able to build new small nuclear plants, including a company Gates founded called Terra Power. So I went last night to Terra Power's website. I'd encourage you to do that. It's all about innovation and saving the world has nothing with money we're doing this because we're altruistic sure we love the world we want to stop the the contamination the pollution of fossil fuels so in the discussion gates says i get what you're saying senator that you know there'll there'll be hardship there'll be unemployment problems in in west virginia if we run coal out of business i mean 20 percent of the labor force in west virginia has to find something else probably 30 percent have to find something else to do i just happen to have this business that I founded called Terra Power, 
that builds these downsized, much smaller than normal nuclear plants, we'll build a bunch of those in West Virginia just because I love you. It's not about the money. It's not about another <laughs> billion bucks. Um, Gates also met again with Manchin on July 7 of this year at the Sun Valley Media Conference in Idaho. I have no idea why Gates is in Idaho, um, Manchin's in Idaho. I mean, I do have an idea. They planned a meeting somewhere off the beaten path, and they got together. Um, Gates made progress with Manchin. Manchin gave Gates kind of a soft commitment. I think you've got me there. That's when Gates um, enlisted the services. I love this name. You ready? The Blue-Green Alliance Coalition of Environmental and Labor Groups. I mean, imagine, if you're somebody who sees the world as I do, the two worst colors is blue and green, right? <laughs> I mean, if blue, yeah. and, if blue comes at you, that's Democrat. If green comes at you, that's Democrat. But blue-green? I mean, I, I'm done. I mean, I don't have a chance against <laughs> blue and green. I'll fight the green, and I'll fight the blue. But the Blue-Green Alliance Coalition of Environmental and Labor Groups spent about 18 months lobbying Manchin uh, prior to Gates being involved. And, um, you know, it's going to have a very, I mean, it, here's the, the COB, I mean, excuse me, COB, CBO says statistically indistinguishable from zero is how much is going to affect inflation. The United Nations climate, you know, uh, analysis says that, you know, nine one thousand nine one ten thousandth of one degree in 2100 so you passed a bill that is about 749 billion dollars so three quarters of a trillion dollars is spent in taxes energy uh, irs agents it will do nothing for the climate zero nothing it will do nothing for inflation except perhaps exacerbate the problem because government borrowing money infusing that money into the economy always leads, always leads to increased inflation. Thank old Bill Gates for that. Back hmm. in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. I'm trying to soak in what you just uh, just described out there about Bill Gates and Manchin. I mean, a billionaire trying to make the world a better place. Yeah, right. You know, he's he's fallen out of high regard with me, Gates has, in okay. the last few years. But okay. that's, that's, uh, that's not the point. Uh, the point is... Wonder what Mansion or Mansion's wife got for this. Well, I mean, the way it would yeah, normally work. Cynical, because but, everybody's sure, but, working but you for better the be cynical. If you're going to be accurate, you better be cynical. But the way it would normally work is, you know, the bill passes, it becomes law of the land. Um, there are impacts or implications in West Virginia. Mansion's wife, I would expect one day to end up on the board at Terra Power. I mean, I don't know that, and you can't, you know, I mean, obviously I can't predict the future. I have no idea what, what you know, tomorrow holds, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if Manchin's wife were in attendance at the meeting for Joe to get a commitment from Bill Gates that, because Manchin's probably, I mean, he'd be a wealthy man in our world, but he's not a wealthy man in Gates's world. Poor man want to be rich, rich man want to be king, king ain't satisfied till he rules, what? Everything. Everything. So that's what, there, there's always another rung on the ladder. So when Manchin sits down with Gates, he's got more than most, but he doesn't have anywhere near as much as Gates does, and he's trying to climb that proverbial ladder. So there's a there's a way to financially advantage himself and his family. So yeah, I would expect one of these days an announcement that you know Joe Manchin's wife is now on the board at Terra Power because she so cares about energy and in West an, Virginia. She's an expert. Sure, I mean she's an expert, mm -hmm. and you know sure. um, maybe there's not a 
you know, a laptop and all that to go along with it, like there was with Hunter Biden. I mean, I wouldn't expect that at this stage in her life, but who knows what tomorrow might hold. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Hello, David. Yeah, guys, anytime a company starts with Terra, look out. And if you put blue and green together, you get, look what color you get. Uh, you guys were talking about California earlier. There are more people in California than all of Canada. And Canada is the same size as the United States. In fact, L.A. County has basically twice as many people as the whole state of South Carolina. Uh, but to get that to your neocons, um, I believe you said Cheney was from, what, uh, McLean County? I think that's, I mean, I'm sorry, town, that's in Fairfax County. Yep, Fairfax County, McLean, so in Virginia. There you go. So if if Trump's candidate gets 66% of the vote and Cheney gets 28%, I guess that's plus 38R. I didn't say D this time. But let's get back to to some of these neocons. Uh, Dick Cheney, uh, remember we used to just jump all over that guy, man. He was Halliburton. He was a Darth Vader behind W. Uh, but he's part of the establishment, and, and I keep thinking about this. Bill Crystal and Herschel Walker, and Bill Crystal was Dan Quayle's chief of staff. And remember Dan Quayle, I'll ask the listeners, and Murphy Brown, uh, the guy had the spelling of potato. Uh, you are no Jack Kennedy. Uh, those moments. So these are your neocons, and you know what? The Democrats love them. They love the neocons because they want to entice them to run against them because they know they can tear their butts up anytime. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. When I listened to Cheney last night, she never said I congratulated Hagman. She said I conceded the race. I mean, it was like Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. I mean, it, <laughs> it was crazy to listen to her, uh, you know, being such a martyr, uh, you know, above the fray. It's kind of a grandiose. Um, once again, it reminds me, she kept talking about Lincoln and referring to herself she as thinks a lot of herself. You know, yeah, I mean, sure. she really does. Um, <laughs> she lost her home state. By, by, I mean, she's the incumbent with, with the family name and tradition. I mean, everything is in her favor. And she lost by what? 35 percentage points. Yeah. That's getting killed. I mean, go home. We're tired of you and your ilk. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. South Carolina is red. Wyoming is red, red, red. I mean, it's extremely extreme. When I ran for um, lieutenant governor, I'll give an example real quick. Fifty um, percent of the precincts had reported, and I'm down about two or three points. And the chairman of the GOP came in and said to my family, I mean, they had us kind of set up in a place and hold up somewhere. <laughs> and he came in and said, um, and my wife says, I thought the poll said such and such. And he said, we'll be fine here, but it ain't Wyoming. <laughs> you know, this is still a, a contested seat, contested state. Um, just the, I mean, if the Republican doesn't do something real stupid in South Carolina, he'll win or she'll win. The Republican in Wyoming can do something real stupid and still win in Wyoming. Um, Tanya Powers is in New York, but here to talk a little bit about Wyoming and Alaska. Some of the primary results Um Tanya, we don't have the, the final tallies in, in Alaska in particular, but we've got enough to know kind of where we stand and how we're moving forward. Well, we know that in Alaska, um, the, keep in mind, they have a, a ranked choice uh, primary system. So that means the top four vote getters in a primary race, regardless of what their party affiliation is, 
they advanced to the general election. So in the Senate race, you had Senator Lisa Murkowski, who's trying to keep her seat. She was um, you know, challenged by a Trump-backed uh, challenger. Murkowski got 44% of the vote. The challenger got 40% of the vote. They will both go ahead and go to the general election in November because they're the top two vote getters. So those two and two more, the two under there, will go to the general election. That's how this works. Um, in the uh, House House primary, the one that uh, Sarah Palin is, is running in, uh, there was a Democrat who got uh, 38% of the vote. That's the most uh, in that in that area or in that uh, race. Palin got 32% of the vote. Another Republican right behind her got 29% of the vote. That fourth place person, that one is still apparently too close to call. I don't know if they've made a decision on that one. But whoever is the fourth place person, all four of them will go to the general election. If that fourth person is a Republican, you're going to have one Democrat and three Republicans in the general election. That's the way they do it. The the top four vote getters go on to November. So there's this is is different from a lot of places. Uh, a lot of it sounds very weird if you're not used to, <laughs> to hearing about ranked choice voting. And in Wyoming. Well, in Wyoming, that's the Liz Cheney race that we've been watching. Um, not a huge surprise that she lost that seat. Uh, 29% of the vote is what she got. Her challenger, Harriet Hageman, who was the Trump back challenger, got 66% of the vote there. Um, again, not a huge, um, not a huge surprise. It is interesting, though, that just two years ago, Liz Cheney got like 75% of the vote almost um, in an election. So it shows you just how quickly things can turn. You know, and Tanya, there's a there's a lot to read in here. I mean, obviously, there's the Trump dynamic and the endorsing of Hagman and, you know, Cheney steadfastly opposing the president. Uh, I, I've tried to ponder this morning exactly what it means. And uh, I, when, I, when I hear Cheney... I hear neocon, neoconservatism, and it looks to me like the Republican Party, whether they move past, you know, Trump or not, they they certainly move past neoconservatism being the core philosophy that has dominated that party really since George H.W. Bush um, kind of took the baton from Ronald Reagan. I think that's I think that's a fair assessment. Um, today's Republican Party is not the Republican Party that that you know. It, it, there's a there's a divide in the Republican Party, and I don't think I'm you know <laughs> I'm not saying anything brand new, but everybody who's known everybody's known this and seen this uh, in the last few years, especially, uh, which is why you have you know some of uh, the candidates have been backed. Let's say more of the traditional conservative Republican, which you would normally consider a Republican candidate uh, in the past. That's the, some of those you've seen, you know, backed by people like Mike Pence in some of these races before this one. Um, you know, this I, th- I think it's very telling that Liz Cheney has said before she knew exactly what she needed to do to get reelected. She decided against doing that. She said she felt like she needed to do what she thought was right. And that is the reason that she has, you know, made the political moves that she's made. She knew that this was not going to be the popular route to go. Um, but, you know. I, I, I think in that kind of in that respect, you kind of got to you kind of got to hand it to a politician who's willing to lose their job over, you know, a stance that they feel like they've got to take. Yeah, I, I guess um, it's very interesting. <laughs> It'll be interesting to watch it play itself out, especially in Alaska. There are a lot yeah. of, I mean, we know what's going to happen in Wyoming. We really don't in Alaska. Thank you, Tanya. Appreciate your time. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, but, but when you go down the road of, of being I mean, you got to be careful with that, guys. Um 
as a former candidate and somebody who's run for office before, the last thing you want to do is insult your voters. You just can't do that. You can do a lot of dumb stuff and get away with it. I mean, voters like forgiving candidates. I mean, I'm convinced of that. I think if candidates present themselves as humble men and women who are no different than you, um, the voters have a an inclination to say, okay, I forgive you for that. That The couple of things they won't forgive you for is advantaging yourself in a way that they can't because they're not in elected office. I mean, I just think voters have a... Uh, kind of a low tolerance for that. We're not putting up with that. Um, you know, if, and use the, um, what was it, the college scandal when some of the celebrities, you know, had money and access to influential people, they get their kid in Stanford, your kid can't get in. I mean, people are real slow to forgive you for that. That manipulation of the system is kind of personally offensive, I found. And the other thing they won't forgive you for is insulting who they are, what they stand for. And when you say to the voters of Wyoming, I'm doing this because it's the moral, virtuous, um, ethical thing to do, you're basically saying because you're not. You're not. I, right. I, see, and, and I want to be careful here because it's water under the bridge, but I think one of the big mistakes Tom Rice made was, was kind of um, standing on that soapbox. And once again, I think Tom's good and decent. I don't think Liz Cheney is. I mean, I've said that before, and I'll say it again. Somebody said there's no difference in Rice and Cheney. No, there's a lot of difference in Tom Rice and Liz Cheney. I'll assure you of that. Liz Cheney is a product of establishment politics. She is an entitlement snob. Tom Rice is not. I mean, he's not. Tom is a business guy, um, made a vote that I knew and he knew was going to wreck his political future. Um, I don't understand why he felt the need or desire to do that, but I'm not Tom. I, I, I'm, I'm careful. But why did he feel the need well, to say I, Liz Cheney would make a well, great I, speaker I, I think of the that's house. kind of, um, you know, I'm going out, but I'm going out with a bang. And I get that. I mean, you know, but guys, politicians are emotional too. I mean, they get frustrated. They get angry. They get bothered. Um, they react accordingly. But for those who say, no, I think Cheney is um, the embodiment of everything America first has disdained for. McLean, Virginia, running for a Senate seat in Wyoming. How many nights this year do you think Liz Cheney slept in Wyoming? I mean, let's be honest. She's unique there. And and once again, I think when you when you say I did this because it was the uh the 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 virtuous thing to do. It was the ethical thing to do. Real careful here. It was the moral thing to do. That's basically saying I just have a little more morality, conviction of morality than you do. And she's also said that it is apparently her personal job and mission to keep Donald Trump from ever being president again, no matter what 75 million voters may or may not have yeah. said. And and I think when you run with an R beside your name and that many voters with, with R beside their name, you, you got to be real careful about that. So, you know, it was not a delicate balancing act. I mean, it was a, was it a conviction of courage? I don't know. I mean, I have no idea uh, what makes Liz Cheney tick. Um, she's the daughter of a, uh, a historic American political figure, whether you like him or not. Cheney was always regarded as the most involved vice president of my lifetime. I mean, nobody believed that, you know, Dan Quayle was doing that much. Nobody believed that Joe Biden was doing that much. We, we always wondered, is Bush running the place or is Cheney running the place? I mean, you're nodding your head. You, you're, you're kind of a, sure. you're a bushy. And, and you know, you, you, you believe that Cheney had a, a very involved role oh, yeah. in, in directing and policy and where the country Rumsfeld. was going. Um, but, but I, you know, as, as I philosophize this morning and try to, you know, make heads or tails of what happened, 
it, it seems to me that, I mean, Cheney was a perfect storm, not very likable. Um, her father was involved in a grave, grave mistake that the Republican Party masterminded. And by that, I mean, I mean, go back and read some of the um, Cheney and Colin Powell had a pretty good relationship until that speech at the U.N. Remember when Colin Powell um, gave the speech? Now, once again, there's a fair debate about did Saddam Hussein have weapons of mass destruction or not? A large part of the world still believes he had it and they were able to ship them off to Syria. I, I wouldn't doubt that. Well, I think he used I mean, it, them. Yeah, but he used them against point. the Kurds. Yeah. I mean, he killed millions of Kurds or hundreds of thousands of Kurds. So, yeah, I mean, I think there was a time that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, but we sent young men and women on the the information or the intelligence that he still had them. And when we got down there and looked, we didn't find any. And you can't make that mistake. And Colin Powell's regret was not having enough corroborating information to say what it is that Cheney almost forced him to say. Now, Colin Powell's a grown man, was, uh, a distinguished man. But, but, but Colin Powell still said something to the U.N., and he overstated how sure they were of what they had. I mean, I think George W. Bush was deeply concerned about that. I think Colin Powell was deeply concerned. I think George W. Bush goes to bed at night now with regrets about misinformation, bad information, and and the fact that men and women, I don't think Cheney regrets it a bit. I mean, I think Cheney's a no-nonsense, you know, get it my way or don't get it at all kind of politician, and I think that's Liz Cheney. And you see so much of him in her. And, you know, I think she did what she did because it was all about her. This was not about Trump. I mean, Tanya said she could have voted the other way and stayed in the, and she could have. I mean, she could have. But Liz Cheney didn't like this being about Donald Trump. The Cheneys like it being about the Cheneys. And the point I tried to make earlier, and, I, and I'll, I'll say this until the day I die, for Liz Cheney to condemn Donald Trump as a dangerous man in a democracy, and, 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 you know, Dick Cheney to come on the television and say, you know, we need to keep Donald Trump as far away from the levers of government as possible because he's irresponsible, he's bombastic, he's unpredictable. Um, nobody's limping because of Donald Trump. Nobody had their legs blown off because of Donald Trump. Nobody's head is marred forever. Nobody has terminal brain damage. No, nobody has, um, no, nobody buried a kid in the name of Donald Trump. And I think that, I mean, that's pretty rich. I mean, that's too rich for me. When a Cheney, Liz, or Dick tell the Republican primary voter that the reason you shouldn't vote for Donald Trump is because he's a dangerous man. And I think Cheney was the, the force du jour in the Bush White House that convinced a very good and decent man in George W. Bush that this is the right thing to do. And if we've got to fudge a little, then we'll just have to fudge a little. And if I can go see Colin Powell at your permission and convince him that fudging a little is worth it, then maybe we can convince Colin Powell to do that. I think Colin Powell died regretting that episode in American history. I think George W. Bush today regrets that. I'm not sure Dick Cheney does. I'm sorry. I mean, I don't know Cheney. Can't read his mind. Obviously, I've never had a conversation with him. But I think it's real rich when the Cheney's lecture to the Republican primary voter about what the moral, ethical, and righteous thing to do when there are so many young men and women and so many American families who have had their lives completely turned upside down, futures obliterated, 
with a uh, you know some sort of explosive device in a desert that maybe we should have even been um, uh, American blood and try. That's just I mean that that once again like Trump don't like Trump. I mean I get that. I mean there are a lot of ways to be critical of Donald Trump. The Cheneys better be real careful in how critical they are. Let's go to the phone. Here's Jim in Florence. Good morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. Do- Donald Trump is a dangerous man when when you're Liz Cheney. So um, she she made an accurate statement on that, uh, but. But, Ken, you talked about earlier um, they're, they're so much more afraid of the America First movement than they were of the uh, Tea Party of the religious right. But when I think about those groups, and I was in college when the Tea Party was really at its height, they were old white people. And the religious right kind of carries the same uh, group of people. The America First is all over the map, and I, I I think because they can't pinpoint it, it really bothers them. I mean, look at how Donald Trump grew with Hispanics um, and just the working class in general. Um, so I think that's what scares them is it, it just it, it wiped out everything that they knew was was what it was when it came to politics. And um, the rules are the rules no more. Um but one other thing, when we think about who should Donald Trump pick as a VP, I mean, I've thrown out some unusual names like Tulsi Gabbard, and you've thrown out J.D. Vance. But who has Donald Trump really shown that was right this entire time? Was Ron Paul? When we talk about ending the Fed, when we talk about uh, dismantling the FBI, when we talk about non-interventionist wars and all these other things, Ron Paul wore that 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 for a long time and really took a beating for doing it uh, so maybe Rand might be a good uh um, medium in that but uh just a couple of things to point out thank you Ken. thank you jim appreciate that let's go all the way back to early this morning at about uh, before seven my might have been around seven when larry called in and we're talking about you know how many deep thinkers are there in america you know a thinker I mean, there are things i know to be true there are things i think are true Deep thinking requires you to contemplate and consider things that, that I don't have the answers for. Once again, um, l- levels of, 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 of assuredness. I know this to be true. I know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. I know that 27 degrees is 27 degrees. Um, it's things I think to be true. I think the game cops are going to be a little better this year than they were last. I think we'll get to the end of this show without, you know, me or Rep passing out. And then the deep thinking requires, so, so here's what I'm interested in, because I've argued for, really since Trump shows up and captured the political world, I've argued that there has to be some intellectual underpinning, right? I mean, you've heard me say that a million times, Rev. Uh, Trump is tr- Trump is a political blunt instrument. I mean, he's a, I keep saying this, and I know this, he's the force du jour in American politics today. There is none like him right now. I mean, there's nobody remotely close to the influence he has on American politics in the public square. I mean, Obama's probably doing a lot of things behind the scene, but Trump's out front. He's the salesman. I mean, there's no doubt about it. So so I've always felt that Trump could paint the picture that the American public could understand. But the intellectual underpinning, and I think this is where J.D. Vance and Blake Masters and Peter Thiel and some of these others come in, that there has to be, if you talk about, you know, and, and once again, I said earlier this morning, and I'll say it again, because you're not a deep thinker doesn't mean you're not a good person. It doesn't mean you are not of great value to society. Um, some people choose to not be deep thinkers. Some people have the capacity. They just choose to not be deep thinkers. Um, 
It's a little bit like, I ought to use a dog analogy. I hate to compare a person to a dog. A dog's loyal. A dog's smart. A dog can reason to some degree. I mean, they know to go through the door when it's open, not try to, you know, beat. I mean, so, so the dog has a, a certain intellect about it, but, but the dog can't write poetry. They can't understand poetry. They're loyal. They're good. They're decent. Um, they, you know, people, people are passionate. People are hardworking. People have good morality. Uh, people have good ethics. People care about their fellow human beings. But, but a small percentage of Americans have the ability to think deeply about things that not only do they not know, they don't even think they know. That the unknown, that's to me what deep thinkers do. So when I look at the dark enlightenment and I look at the cathedral, you got on one side in one corner, you know, weighing a million pounds is the cathedral. In the other corner, weighing, you know, 25 pounds is the dark enlighteners. And I think you've got to merge that. I think there has to be a convergence between um, Trump the painting the picture and the dark enlighteners writing the poem. And is it Blake Masters? Is it J.D. Vance? I don't know. Rand Paul is a little bit of a, a person who writes poetry. I mean, Rand Paul would be kind of a hybrid there. Um, I would not be opposed at all to Rand Paul having a prominent role in the Trump administration. I think Rand Paul would make a good Supreme Court justice. Because more important than the law is the Constitution. And I think Rand Paul is a constitutional scholar. He may not be a lawyer. He may get himself in boxes when it comes to legalities and precedent and all these other sorts of things. But in, in essence, is to interpret the Constitution. What does the Constitution say? And, and I think Rand Paul would do a good job of that. But, but that, that, I'm, I'm long-winded. But the point I'm trying to make is find somebody who relates to writing the poem. Mike Pence was a, uh, he was a Christian conservative. And a lot of people told Trump, hey, man, you're going to have problems with the Christian vote because of your lifestyle and your, you know, your New York City flamboyance. I mean, the Christians aren't going to really like that in you. So this makes them comfortable. You know, this guy's hair is parted exactly right. His suit is groomed exactly right. I mean, he says exactly what you expect him to say at exactly the time you expect him to say that. So Mike Pence added what? An ingredient of predictability. You've got this unpredictable, you know, president. Can't have an unpredictable vice president. Well, I think we're to a point now where you can be more risky as a vice president. I don't think you need to go find anybody remotely close to what Mike Pence was. With all due respect to Pence, and I think Pence served the president well. I still think he did the right thing on January 6th. Some of you disagree. I respect that. But I think you've got to really find somebody who brings an ingredient of intellectual underpinning understanding America first, understanding some of the policy initiatives. Somebody asked me yesterday in a conversation, so what are the policy initiatives? Uh, know it all? I mean, it's obvious you're going to be real excited tonight after you beat Liz Cheney. I mean, you Trumpsters, you, uh, you know, you're going to be on cloud nine, hog heaven, once you beat Liz Cheney and, and you know, kind of kind of rid the system of the last um, holdout. So, so what are you going to do now? I would initiate the, uh, I would, I would cut funding by 25% every government agency that has appeared to be politicized. I mean, that would be a, a, a policy initiative. Uh, you know, you can't fire people. I mean, the legislature doesn't have the right to fire people. You can starve them to death. I mean, you can make them, you can force them to make adjustments. You can say, okay, IRS, your budget last year was a billion dollars. This year, 750 million. Okay, DOJ, last year, your budget was a billion dollars. This year, 750 million. I'm making these numbers up. Obviously, I don't know what their budgets are, but I would cut funding to government agencies that I believe have become over-politicized. And once again, I would not involve, get myself involved in uh, personnel matters. You can't. You get sued, you lose. 
because there's so many standings that allow government employees to be real difficult to fire. But if you cut funding 25%, when people retire, they're not going to be replaced because there's not enough money to pay them. And if we find out 25 is too much, we'll begin addressing and adjusting accordingly. But you get rid of the entrenched element within our government that has become, I don't know, corrupt and politically motivated. I think they're corrupt. I know. Here we go back to deep thinking. Ready? I think they are politically corrupt. I know they're politically motivated. Take a break. Back in a minute. So every now and then, I think I could sneak one in on Facebook. I mean, I'm sure on them. I mean, refs convinced me I'm on some list. Shadow oh, banning, you know is that it. what you call it? Absolutely. I mean, they have content moderators, and they make sure these, um, the potential of these posts are suppressed, and these other are celebrated and exclaimed as being. Um, so I did something last night late, trying to sneak one in. I did it at about, what, 8.30, <laughs> uh, maybe closer. That might have been 9 o'clock when I did it, just to see Facebook content moderators were still awake. <laughs> And on the and job, if they're paying attention, and they are. I mean, they they, oh, they yeah. were very aware. So I don't know how many of you know this, but the CEO of Pfizer has been diagnosed. He's caught COVID, um, and he's quadruple vaxxed. I went back and read a couple of um. This is kind of interesting. I don't want to. I mean, this is Twitter world, and I didn't do this. But his name is um Albert. Is it Burla? Uh, B O U R L A. Um. Anyway, in September. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, January, February, March. In April of 2021, April the 1st, which is April's Fool's Day. Okay, <laughs> this may be an April's Fool joke. Uh, I don't think it is because it's CEO of Pfizer. Got to be careful when you CEO of Pfizer. And, um, and he has a blue you know, check mark yeah, on Twitter. He's too, got a blue so check mark. He's a serious guy. I mean, he's a serious guy. CEO of Pfizer has to be a serious guy, right? He's quadruple vaxxed. You know, damn well he's serious to be quadruple vaxxed. Only the unserious and unwashed have chosen to not participate in the scam that has been perpetrated against the American people called um, a vaccine that doesn't stop you from getting COVID. Four vaccines don't stop you. So if four vaccines don't stop you from getting the disease that you're vaccinated against, why are we still calling it a vaccine? It's not a vaccine. It's a shot. It's a therapeutic agent. Stop calling it a vaccine, you moron, you. So, um, March 1, 2021, the CEO of Pfizer says, and I quote, I'm excited to share that updated analysis from our phase three study with BioNTech also showed that our COVID-19 vaccine was 100% effective in preventing hashtag COVID-19 cases in South Africa. 100% exclamation, exclamation, Pfizer.com news uh, press release. That's how it started. How's it going? Um, I'll tell you how it's going. Um, two days ago, he released a tweet. Uh, actually, about a week ago, he put a tweet out that said, uh, I would like to let everyone know that I've tested positive for COVID-19. Hashtag COVID-19. I am thankful to have received four doses of the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, and I'm feeling well while experiencing very mild symptoms. I'm isolating and have started a, rec- started a course in, was it, Paxlovid. Paxlovid. Yeah, Paxlovid. Paxlovid. I mean, that, that's kind of the, um, I mean, that's the, um, so he's got four vaccines and now he's taking, I mean, he's a walking Pfizer chemical plant and the guy has COVID. And, you know, I, I'm telling you guys that, that this country's made a lot of mistakes in recent memory and we've got a lot of things wrong. Some I think were intentional. Some things obviously were just 
random mistakes, join the club. We believe something. We think something. We do something in response to that. We end up being wrong. I've done it. You've done it. We've all done it. But but Pfizer is unbelievable in the past they've been given. Johnson & Johnson, Merck, all these, Moderna, all these companies that have the government in their pocket um, have really done a lousy job of being honest with the American people. So 2021, the guy says, 100%, exclamation, exclamation, Pfizer.com refers to the news story. The same guy that said the study in South Africa was showing 100% effectiveness now has COVID. And he said after the third shot, when you get the third, there's a 100% chance you don't get COVID until you get your fourth and you do. And now you're treated with another Pfizer product. It has been a scam unlike any scam we've ever been hoodwinked on. I'm sorry, but that's it. And for you folks out there that chastised me to the point of condemnation that I was being irresponsible by not encouraging people to go get vaccinated, the most responsible thing I have ever done behind this microphone is not encourage you to go get vaccinated because we didn't have a damn clue how effective or not, what some of the side effects could be or could not. I want to say again, the most the most responsible thing I've ever done, and I ain't done much responsible on this radio show, is not encouraging men and women without proper data, research, and analysis to go get a uh, an experimental drug injected into their body. Friel's about to bust a gut to say something in the country you know i mean that means he's really excited what, what do you want to <laughs> well add here's here? what's frustrating you were just talking about uh misinformation and uh, stuff like that if you put what i'm about to say on facebook it would be banned but what i'm about to say is 100 percent facts i'm not vaccinated right um at least four times at least four times i was at a party or hanging out with friends where every single person got it except for me and i was like one of the only people that weren't vaccinated, right? But if it, these are just facts that have you, seems to be the truth. Have you had yeah. COVID? Have you had no? COVID? Never. I think you never. Have. See, I think you have. I've never I think had you it. had a. I think you had a um an asymptomatic case of COVID. You built natural immunity, and that natural immunity is a million times more effective yes, than those friends who. I, I'll give an example. This is anecdotal. Take it for what it is. Charles gave us electron anecdotes yesterday. Um, nobody in my family, in my immediate family, has been vaccinated. Everybody in my immediate family has had COVID. Nobody's had it twice. Nobody's been real ill. Um, that's, I mean, I just think we, we avoided yeah, herd immunity. Like Fauci had it twice. Uh, the well, president had it yeah, twice. I mean, I, I think now Jill Hyde, I mean, not Jill Hyde. I mean, I'm, Jill, Jill, Jill Biden. Biden. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, Jill Biden has um, COVID now. I mean, you know, Joe doesn't know it. But he didn't know he had it. Somebody but don't told you remember, so you talk about the Pfizer CEO, but at the highest levels of government, you remember when the president spent how many months and months vaccine shaming people that chose not to get the vaccination? And remember the, the winter of death, the pandemic of the unvaccinated? I mean, that's the kind of pressure that the government put on you for these vaccinations. My wife and I are in the car going to the beach one Friday. And it's kind of a, uh, she and I have colorful conversations. We've been married 35 years next month, so we can have colorful conversations with one another. So she's talking about her hair salon and they're nervous and they're, you know what I mean? People are close to one another and we're trying to sort through what is the right thing to do, what's in her best interest, what is in her customers and clients' best interest. And um, and she's being more diplomatic about it than I am. I mean, she normally is far more diplomatic than I am. Um, and she said, they're going to make you get the vaccine at some point in time. And I came up with a real, real, real philosophical argument. Damn them. 
I mean, that that was my is, is that one word or two? I don't know. Uh, you know, damn them. I mean, I think it's one. D a m n e m. Or U m. I mean, you can spell it U r e. Doesn't matter to me. Is there apostrophe? But, but I mean, that, that's the way I felt. I mean, that that is really the way I felt. And I want to say this again because there were some of you out there that thought I was being irresponsible. Uh, I had two people come up to me at the gym, and I hold these men in high regard. Said Ken, seriously now. I mean, I understand part of your act on the radio is to provoke. I mean, it's to inspire debate and create conversations and to, uh, you know, provoke people into engaging in political thought and theory. I get all that. I mean, I and I respect that. I mean, I, I don't like it much, but I, I give you that. I mean, you guys do a pretty good job at that part of entertaining a listenership. But you've got to do better than than that. I mean, there is scientific data and, and analysis that prove this vaccine works. It's highly effective, and you need to encourage people. I mean, here, here's a, you, you don't know this, folks, but let me tell you, you know who you are? You're my people. I mean, that's how the world, I mean, when I talk about, you know, the, the friends of mine who don't care much for what I say on the radio, that they'll, they'll call, well, you know, Ken's got his people. I mean, those people he talks to every morning. I mean, I take it as a compliment. I mean, without you people, I wouldn't have a job. So, yeah, I'm in this thing with you. But but if I thought that it was in your best interest to go get vaccinated and somebody convinced me with proven data, uh, you know, ironclad analysis, I would have encouraged you. I really would have. But there is no way, and I read as much about this as the untrained brain can. I mean, we had doctors that I talked to. We had um clinicians we had you know i mean there, there were a lot of chemists uh, biologists i mean there were a lot of people giving a lot of opinions and and i had some off the record conversations with people in the healthcare industry that said man i'm, I'm nervous about this thing i mean th- this process normally takes a decade we're doing it in six or eight months and i get it i mean i understand operation warp speed i mean everybody was freaking out Let, let's get some um, hope to the marketplace let's get some sort of medication to the marketplace and i think it was effective to some degree on some people but it was not a panacea. It was not a, uh, it was a therapeutic agent. But, but we, we were told that the vaccine works. It's proved, um, it's provable, it's effective, it's, it's safe, it's all, and it was not. That's just simply not the case. So the most responsible thing that I've ever done in 10 years of more irresponsibility than responsibility, when I said I'm not encouraging anybody to go get experimental medication jabbed into their body i'm proud of that extremely proud of that and to those who condemned and chastised look in the mirror were you hoodwinked were you misled were you duped were you a sucker or were you just scared i mean it had to be one of those and if you're just scared say i was scared and when i'm scared i tend to want to listen to what the government says because i've been not me you i've been conditioned to conform and if conformity is easier that's kind of the line I'm going to always get in. Back to your Facebook post. So you post this thing and you, you quote those two tweets from the Pfizer CEO. And uh, and I took a look. Now you have, I think you're at the friends limit of 5,000 on your personal page. And then you have several, you know, maybe 1,000 more or something following. So there's plenty of audience there for you. And normally you can post something and you'll get hundreds of responses. Sometimes, you know, a thousand responses if it's something like like a birthday wish or something uh you have 19 reactions so far and when it came up on my feed it has of course the covid flag and you know click here to get vaccine information yeah and you know that's just the way facebook rolls that's facebook <laughs> you know, doing facebook they own the site it's what they they, do. they they moderate as they see fit and some of the content i guess that i put up yesterday 
they found offensive. You did not sneak anything by. No, I thought I could have laid it, you know. I thought they may be Braves fans and they may be drinking a little bit at a bar in Buckhead. And those computers and those algorithms, they stay up later yeah, than you do. A lot smarter than I am, which ain't saying much. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843 1037 couple of callers are there. Let's go to the phone. Herman in Pamplico. Good morning, Herman. Good morning, gentlemen. I'm going to pose a question and I'll hang up and listen to your comment. Um, knowing how bad that uh, Liz Cheney wants to get after Trump, would it really be surprising that after she's out of office that she, that she went to work for the Department of Justice or the FBI just so she could be involved with investigations on Trump? Thank you, Herman. Appreciate that. I mean, I think she's planning a presidential run. Here's the decision I think she'll make. She will not have a chance in this world to win a Republican primary. I mean, there's no way. I think the number's 15%, maybe 20, no more than that. She could get 7 or 8 or 9% as an independent candidate and some of the neocons, the holdouts, the, 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 the lack of conversion by, you know, the last of the Mohicans, so to speak, in the Republican Party could cost Trump the presidency. And I think they believe that that's worth it. I mean, you know, they're, they're that self-centered. Wow. They're that full of themselves that they would throw the Republican Party in the trash to make sure that Donald Trump gets She's beat. She's almost said as much. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, once again, would you rather get 15 or 20 percent in a Republican primary and not win a single state or get seven or eight percent as an independent candidate for president and allow Joe Biden to get reelected? I mean, that, that's kind of where I think the Cheney's heads are. And look, guys, the Cheney's are the most self-serving, um, politically leeching. And, and that's what the, the, the gall in those two people to lecture to Donald Trump about being a threat and dangerous to democracy, check their record. Go back and look at what Colin Powell said about Dick Cheney in the last couple or three years of his life. Let's go to the phone. Tony in Calhoun County listening to WTQS. Hello, Tony. Hey, good morning. Hey, Ken, go to um, uh, Moderna.com and then click on the link for SEC filings, the Security and Exchange Commission. And you go back to 2016, you'll see how Moderna began as M.T. Nuco in 2016. In 2018, they changed their name to the more accurate Moderna Therapeutics, not Moderna Vaccine, Moderna Therapeutics. And then 2020, it gets renamed as uh, Moderna. Um, As you know, Mr. Malone, Dr. Malone was involved in the development of the mRNA technology. They've been working on the mRNA technology since 2016. Uh, So when you made the comments about, you know, the development of the vaccine in just a year, well, think of it like a pickup truck. You just don't know what body you want to put on it. Uh, So from 2016 to 2020, they built the pickups, the pickups sitting there. All they got to do is figure out what to attach to it. Do we put a man lift in it? Do we put a lift gate? Do we, you know, what what we want to put on as a payload? So the SARS-CoV-2 RNA strand, which is inserted into the nanophospholipid layer or circle spheres, um, was all that was left to uh, figure out what to do. So they could do it quickly. They could figure out, you know, we'll put this RNA strand in there and boom, now we have a COVID vaccine. And they renamed it vaccine. So, yeah, it's, it's been going on for more than a year. Thank you, Tony. Appreciate that. And it's, it's a therapeutic you know, disguised as a vaccine. And and the reason, I mean, th- there was a 
kind of some um, there was some political emergency acts, some of the presidential emergency act, the, the governor's emergency act. Some of the, there were certain uh, there are certain requirements for a vaccine to be called a vaccine unless you waive some of those authorities and, and the government kind of fast tracked in the name. And, and if they called it something other than a vaccine, the other requirements would have been um, applied as usual business. And this was not usual or business as usual. This was a very unusual set of circumstances and situations. Um, yeah. The quadruple vac CEO of Pfizer <laughs> is down with COVID. Can't make it up. Have a good day. We'll talk tomorrow.